Emergency medicine abstract with Sanjay and Mike. Welcome back, EMAverse. EMAers, EMAverse. Now, if you guys want to suggest things what that you'd, you'd like, like to, to be, be called, called <laughs> that'd be fine. We can get t-shirts made, send them out. Mel will be happy to send out a really plush sweatshirt for everybody who subscribes to EMA with the new moniker for EMA listeners, you know, as long as it's super cool. You know, what's interesting You're is welcome, Mel. that's a very unintentional sort of sneak peek of one of the papers, which is about how you dress on shift and how you're perceived. Those of you wearing those MRAP jackets and things, you is that a pretty- good thing? Is that a bad thing? So- People love it? Do they hate it? Spoiler alert, you look like a nerd. <laughs> a cool nerd. That's not a thing. Sure I, I guess it is now. That's a thing. It used to not be a thing, but now it's a thing. That's no, great. That's a thing. Ever that's since Revenge of the Nerds, it's really, you know. That's that nerds back. That, that's that nerd culture back. <laughs> but now, I, I think there's a cool nerd. Yeah. Well, we're in November. It's November. What's, so, your, what's, your, what's your favorite thing about November? Well, obviously, Thanksgiving's my favorite wow. thing about or Friendsgiving. Yeah, Sorry, that was the lead in there. Yeah, well, our, no, fair, fair enough. Friendsgiving celebration, which is, I hope gets to happen this year. Well, you know, I was actually thinking about that because on the way over, no, yesterday I was listening to the September, yes. which just got published because it's September 2nd here. I was listening to that and it seems like we're on this cycle, like where we say, right. look, COVID's gone, everybody, yay. And then we're, by the time we get to the next segment, we're like, wow, we were wrong about that. You know, and then other know, times we're like, COVID is bad. And then two months later, we're like, oh, God, it's you know much better. You know, what's very funny about that was that uh, you know, my wife, Amanda, she worked the night shift last night. Mm-hmm. And she called me like five minutes before she went into her shift. Mm-hmm. You know, And she's like, I just had to call because I just listened to the September intro. And she's like, it was so funny because you guys were so optimistic and yeah. now Delta variant is raging through yeah. the South. <laughs> no, well, there's this cycle and apparently it's very true. There's this cycle that goes about two and a half months for COVID when it comes in and it has these big spikes and, and we are counter cycle because we tape about yeah. two months before you listen. And uh, so we're just always going to be just, wrong about that. <laughs> let's the just COVID say, pandemic is well, you know what? Not. Even when things were bad, we didn't do a Friendsgiving last year. It was the first year in many years that we missed it. But generally speaking, we're kind of in the same little bubble, a little pod. Right. So hopefully that will happen again this year. Because I want to eat my Friendsgiving sign went stagnant last year. I see. I see. That's no good. That's yeah, no well, good. I, I'm very excited because although it's November and you guys already know the outcomes of all these football games, I do not. And we're going to uh, the LSU-UCLA game, go Bruins, tomorrow. But, you know, it's going to be a packed Rose Bowl with all sorts of people from Louisiana. It's terrifying. They have a, they have a mask policy. Yeah. Well, we went to the game last week, too, yeah. the home opener, and it was loosely enforced at best. Having said that, the home opener, there wasn't really a problem with, like, social distancing. Yeah, that's true. It's pretty quiet there. It was also one bajillion yeah, it was, degrees. It was, it was 275 degrees, and uh, there were, like, 75 people at the Rose Bowl. Yeah, this, so. this is a great thing about fall, at least, you know— in my life, because you got Friendsgiving, Thanksgiving to look forward to, college football, yep. both my kids' birthdays in the fall, our birthdays are in the fall, Toby's birthday, the dog's in the fall. Did you just talk about your dog's birthday? Oh, yeah. <sighs> Serenity now. <laughs> no, it, you know, Rhea's excited about it. She's planning the whole day. Yeah, but she's two. She's almost three. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, 
Nailed ya. All right, what do we got on tap? So on tap, we've got, uh, let's see, well, we've got well, 20 we, papers 20 this papers month, this so month. a little bit different. There's some interesting ones. Uh, I've got the paper chasers. Mine's on delayed bleeds, so delayed scanning, looking for a bleed in anticoagulated oh. patients. Yeah, my paper chasers on uh, monoclonal antibodies for COVID, and there's a little bit of good news there. All right, and I've got one on not massive transfusion. Submassive transfusion? Mm, one up, yeah. Ultra massive transfusion. So stay stay tuned Whoa. for that one. Yeah, I've got a really nice one. I really like about the prognostic implications of hydronephrosis in the context of renal colic. So I that, think that's a good that one. I am looking forward to our discussion on that one because yeah. I know we kind of see eye to eye on the, I guess, the big picture of right. the utility of the ultrasound in that case. And I'm curious if the authors see eye to eye with us or. Well, you'll have to, you know. Ah, I can't we'll wait. I can't wait. And then after the abstracts are done there's going to be a little a little time to talk nerdy i suppose oh, it's always time to talk did we ever think of a better name for that anybody sent anything nobody in? sent anything in got nerd <laughs> did we did we try that one got nerd is good <laughs> like that that just came that's to me that's one. all right that's all right that's all right yeah nobody's nobody suggested anything so i'm not optimistic about uh the EMA or sweatshirts either but and we'll they, see and they are doing uh was it cognitive biases Part two. Part two. First part was in June, the yeah. June so episode. A couple months since the first part, but now we're. And then there's going to be an ultra summary by Jess and, and Aaron. So that's correct. Hopefully, like Jen last month, because he's is back. Still on maternity leave, I believe. So that sounds like a pretty full agenda. Let's get ready. Dive Buckle on. your seatbelts. And we dive in. With your seatbelts on? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe dive's not the right word. Drive in. <laughs> that sounds weird. I like dive in, but if you're going to Well, dive, you ruined it with the seatbelt. If you're going to dive in, you shouldn't buckle your seatbelt. If you are going to go full speed ahead, then you should. Boom. Wow. <laughs> Let's hope it gets better from here. Paper chase. Abstract number one. Repeat. Head CT for anticoagulated patients with initial negative scan is not cost-effective, and this is by Borst et al., from surgery. So traumatic brain injury affects an estimated 1.7 million people annually in the U.S. alone, and elderly patients have the highest relative rates of hospitalizations and death. Now, the evaluation and management of elderly patients is further complicated by the fact that they are more likely to be on anticoagulants than their younger counterparts, introducing this concept of a delayed head bleed. Current guidelines and most society positions generally recommend that all patients who come in on anticoagulation get a head CT. So the first one, everybody agrees, no matter how minor the trauma, you scan the head. But recommendations are much more mixed for the next steps, ranging from Let's OBS them for some arbitrary period of time. Let's repeat scan everybody to let's just discharge them and let them OBS themselves at home. The literature estimates the risk of delayed bleed to be somewhere between 0.3% and 6%. So kind of a wide range there. And also suggests that the risk is highest for patients on warfarin and lowest for patients on the antiplatelet agents. The authors of this study who interestingly are trauma surgeons, so these aren't like ED docs who don't want to do these delayed scan protocols, provide us with the biggest and most complete view on this topic to date. 
by presenting data from a consecutive sample of patients on anticoagulants over a five-year period where their local hospital protocol mandates a repeat head CT for all patients six hours after the initial scan. Antithrombotic medications included anticoagulants, warfarin, the DOAX, heparin, and oxaparin, and antiplatelet agents, aspirin, clopidogrel, all the other antiplatelet things, aspirin, etc. But Plavix is the one that made up most of these. The exact chart review methods are not described in full detail. Basically, it says the medical record was reviewed for evidence of a clinical change in neurologic status at the time of the repeat head CT, but doesn't really say how that was done or there's like some consistency or kappas in the way that was looked at, but there you go. So poor chart review methods. It's journal of surgery, a little bit poor chart review methods. They identified 1,676 patients presenting with blunt head trauma on anticoagulants between 2014 and 2019, of which the initial head CT was negative in 82%. So 18% had a positive head CT right up front. The median age was 77 years, about half were male. The median GCS was 15 with a range of 14 to 15s. Like I said, these were pretty minor head injuries. And the most common mechanism of injury by far was a fall, about 80% of the patients. In terms of what they were taking, about a third were taking antiplatelet agents split nearly 50-50 between aspirin and Plavix-like agents, and two-thirds were taking anticoagulants. 40% of those were on warfarin, 30% were on DOAX, and then there were some combos and a few other things. So of those with an initial negative head CT, 12 patients, or 0.9%, developed a delayed bleed. Seven of them were on warfarin. And they kind of say that you know, well, that sort of goes along with the literature that, you know, more of the warfarin patients had a bleed. But actually, if you look at sort of the relative percentages, that's not true. It was 1.3% of all patients on warfarin versus 1.1% of all patients on the DOAC. So relatively, actually, they were about the same. None of them had a change in neurologic status. But like I said, the method at which they looked at that was a little bit suspect, but there were no interventions performed on any of the bleeds that were identified. Although the confidence intervals were pretty large, there was a statistically significant difference in mean INR between patients on warfarin who did have a delayed head bleed versus those that did not. Those that did had a super therapeutic INR of 3.7, and those that did not had a mean INR of 2.4. Their focus in this paper is on cost. And they say that the CTs cost almost a million dollars, like just shy of a million dollars, all these excess CTs. But in truth, This is a really, really low cost estimate because it does not include the cost for obsing these patients, right, keeping them in the hospital, and those who may have gotten care, even just further obs, because of a positive second scan that they didn't do anything about. So some of the strengths of this study are that it is the largest to date on the topic, it includes a big portion of patients on DOACs, and it removes the potential of selection bias for these second head CTs because per hospital protocol, everybody got a second head CT. Most of the limitations are those common sort of chart review-based studies, in addition to no effort to make any long-term follow-up on any of the patients coming from their single-site study. So they report that based on their data, they have changed their own internal policy. So they don't do this repeat head CT anymore. They do a little bit more of an observation policy now. So they're still not sending people home, 
but they're just sort of saying, hey, if you're one of those places that's doing repeat head CTs on everybody, stop. It's time to stop. Stop the madness. Stop the insanity. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I mean, that's what we've seen with now, I don't know how many papers, maybe I want to say almost 10 probably papers on the subject that keep showing the same thing. A consistent but low rate of delayed rebleeds somewhere in that 1% to 2% range, most of which don't require any surgical intervention. And therefore, you know, if you're looking at this, it seems like there's no reason to keep 100 people there to find one bleed or something like that that people don't intervene on. Yeah, there's been a lot of papers. There hasn't been one recently. I kind of looked through our database. We haven't covered one for a little bit, actually. And like I said, people have always like, they found a fault with all of them. They're like, well, well they yeah, faults, you didn't yeah. scan everybody. Yeah, you know, yeah, So sure. here they scanned everybody. They didn't have many DOACs. And here they had a lot of DOACs. So yeah. this one gives us, I think, the best picture, the most complete picture. And even here, they're saying second scan. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. The only reason I highlight that there's been a lot of other stuff is this is really consistent. So everything we've been saying all along, this isn't like, oh, everybody else said you had to repeat scan. The bleed rate was 20%, something like that. And now we've got this counterbalancing thing that says 1%. So who do you believe? It's all pointing in the same direction, which is low you know, rate of rebleeds. And when there is a rebleed, it's very uncommon that they need anything like a neurosurgical intervention. Yeah. And they didn't get into it in this paper, but some of those other papers talk about sort of the time window of those bleeds mm -hmm. too. And they can be like discovered a week out, yeah. two weeks out. So, you know, even thinking about like a six hour observation period is yeah. really just pulling a number out of thin air. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective study from one hospital where all patients on anticoagulants with head trauma get a second CT by mandatory protocol, although the bleed rate on the first scan was 18%, supporting the use of an initial scan for all comers, the observed delayed bleed rate was 0.9%, and none of these patients required any form of intervention. Although not addressed in this paper, other papers have shown that even if a delayed bleed is going to occur, many will occur outside any reasonable observation period. This is more strong evidence refuting a mandate for delayed CT after some arbitrary observation period. Return precautions are key, and patients with super therapeutic INRs may deserve special consideration. Abstract number two, BAM, lenivimab, and Itesivimab in mild or moderate COVID. This is by Duggan et al., and it's in the Journal of Medicine. So finally, a little good news on the therapeutic side of COVID-19. So it's, you know, of course, abundantly clear that the way out of the COVID pandemic involves vaccination primarily and mask wearing until vaccination can be, you know, rolled out across the world, really. Available therapeutics, on the other hand, have been incredibly disappointing. Even steroids, probably the most proven strategy have a pretty marginal effect, and then only for patients with already severe disease. Preformed monoclonal antibody cocktails have been touted for ambulatory patients with mild or moderate symptoms as a way to give some protection during early infection while the host mounts a full immunologic response. It makes sense, and in vitro, these antibodies are neutralizing, and they definitely work in vivo in sort of like, you know, monkeys and things like that. In this study, the Lilly product, which is this combination of banlanivimab and etesevimab, so these two MABs, was infused into patients with mild to moderate COVID at high risk for progression to severe disease. Basically, that means that the patients were old, obese, immunocompromised, or all of the above. 
The primary outcome was the need for COVID-19 related hospitalization or death from any cause within four weeks. There were multiple secondary outcomes, including changes in sort of nasopharyngeal viral load, the number of ED visits these patients experienced after their infusion, and then time to symptom improvement. Of course, there was also a safety outcome, adverse events related to the infusion. The study was powered to detect a 60% reduction in the primary outcome, which again was hospitalization and or death. And they assumed that the primary outcome would occur in about 9% of the control group. So that just gives you a little sense of how sick these patients were. These are patients that come in with early, mild symptoms, and they were at risk, about a 10% risk for developing, you know, for needing hospitalization, which is very high, meaning that they were, you know, pretty... After they were discharged from the ED. They weren't necessarily, so we'll get into that maybe, but they weren't necessarily in the ED. These, in fact, that's not described in the paper. I have a little bullet point about that. It's not described where they got this infusion. Could have been in an ED, but that's that's just not. But they did get out. sent home after the infusion. They got they early moderate symptoms. They weren't very sick. They got the infusion. They went home. But they could have been in an office or you know research lab or whatever research, um, you know one of those research uh, areas where they do these kinds of things. They enrolled just over a thousand ambulatory outpatients and infused them each with like just under three grams, so twenty eight hundred milligrams of each monoclonal antibody. And the infusion takes just over an hour. Alternatively, the placebo group got placebo. A placebo infusion, I should say. The mean age was 53. The mean BMI was 34. So it seems like obesity was one of the things that they were really, you know, sort of keyed in on in terms of uh, selecting patients. The study took place in early 2021. So sort of like January, February, 2021. There were minor differences between the groups. One notable difference was that the proportion of people with baseline oxygen stats less than or equal to 95 was a little higher in the placebo group compared with the active treatment group, 20% versus 17%, you know, suggesting that maybe that group was slightly sicker, but otherwise they seem pretty balanced at baseline. The key findings, 2% of the monoclonal antibody group were admitted or died compared with 7% of the placebo group. And that result is statistically significant, and it yields a number needed to treat of 27 to prevent one primary outcome. There were no deaths in the active treatment group, and there were nine deaths in the placebo group. That's 0% versus 1.7%. That does not reach statistical significance. Even if it did, the number needed to treat would be like about 60. Viral loads decreased faster in the active treatment arm, And among those who did end up getting hospitalized, those in the active treatment arm had much shorter lengths of stay. So they both had a lower probability of being hospitalized, and then once hospitalized, had shorter lengths of stay. Overall, the average duration of illness was one day shorter in the treatment group compared to the placebo group. Now, unfortunately, these results, which actually look fairly positive, are severely undermined by some of the variants that are now circulating, particularly the Delta Plus variant, which shows in vitro resistance to this cocktail. Okay, So as a result, this Lilly antibody cocktail are approved but not available in states that have greater than 5% of these problematic variants. Now, it is active against the Delta variant. 
It's just not active against the Delta Plus variant or the Gamma variant and some of these some of these other ones. And unfortunately, about half the states in America have greater than 5% circulating variants that this thing's resistant to, and therefore it's not available in those states, including California. Did you say, you may have mentioned this, the patients they enrolled in the study, were they vaccinated, unvaccinated, or mix? Uh, they did not say in particular. However, this study occurred in January and February of 2021. So probably so unvaccinated. I would guess that, I would bet that they were all unvaccinated. But it's a good question, like how this applies to people who've had a COVID vaccination and who we expect very, very low rates of hospitalization. So this Regen-CoV combination antibody, so the, the competitor to the Lilly one, the, the one that Donald Trump famously had when he got COVID, that one was not studied in this at all. This is sponsored by Lilly and to test their antibody cocktail. That one in vitro seems to maintain its activity against all currently known circulating antibodies. And so that one is available, but the data on that one's not published. So, you know, we've got this unfortunately mixed thing. The Lilly thing is published and looks pretty good, but it's not available in most states. And the other one, you know, is available in most states, but the results of their, their main findings are not published. So we're still left a little bit in the lurch here. I know many of you out there are struggling with how to administer this stuff in really busy emergency departments, you know, and I don't have any great answers for you. Remember, all this stuff should only be given to high risk for disease progression patients. That is, you know, at least a greater than 5% risk of hospitalization. How you guys manage it out there when you're, you know, we're all bursting at the seams with COVID and non-COVID patients right now, I don't know. Good luck to you, but know that there is some evidence now that these cocktail monoclonal antibodies do prevent hospitalizations. Editor's commentary. This relatively strong randomized controlled trial shows the combination of banlanivimab and etesevimab effectively reduce the risk of hospitalization in patients with early, mild to moderate COVID and a high risk of progression to severe disease. The number needed to treat is 27 to prevent one hospitalization. These encouraging findings are countered by the high cost of the drug, logistical difficulties in administering it, lack of strong data to support a mortality benefit, and ineffectiveness for some circulating COVID variants. Clinical practice. Abstract number three. Functional outcomes over the first year after moderate to severe traumatic brain injury in the prospective longitudinal track TBI study. This is by Macria et al. from JAMA Neurology. And this kind of a funky one, but a really interesting one. So it is a common and sad occurrence in the ED to diagnose severe traumatic brain injury. And although I think most of us have a pretty good sense that if these patients survive, they are probably going to have some difficulty returning to school or work, be at risk for cognitive decline, they may have increased need for sort of personal care to help them, other deleterious effects, like they may not do well, essentially. We kind of know that. But the rate at which these things actually occur is probably less clear. I sort of assumed it's like all of them, like mm -hmm. we're going to have some functional difficulty and thing like that. The truth is, there's very little reliable data out there that looks at both the short-term outcomes for these people and long-term outcomes. So all the papers published to this point sort of look at either the immediate, immediate 
or how they're doing in a year or so, but there's not a lot of studies out there, really none that I could see that just followed the same people for a year to see the progression of their disease. This paper provides findings from the Transforming Research and Clinical Knowledge in Traumatic Brain Injury, the TRAC-TBI study, which is a multi-center observational effort from 18 level one trauma centers in the U.S. enrolling patients between 2014 and 2018. Functional outcome measures were performed at two weeks after injury, three months, six months, and 12 months after injury. And the primary outcome measure was the Glasgow Outcome Scale Extended, the GOES, which they dichotomized into favorable scores, a score of four to eight, or not favorable scores of one to three, which is something they do pretty commonly in this TBI literature. They have data on 484 patients, 362 with severe TBI. These were patients who came into the ED with a GCS of 3 to 8, so pretty severe, and 121 with moderate TBI, which they defined as the initial GCS of 9 to 12. The patients were sick. In the severe group, the mean ISS was 25.6, 90% were admitted to the ICU, about 30% had an external ventricular drain, about 30% had a craniectomy, and the median hospital length of stay was almost 20 days. The 12-month mortality rate was 30% in the severe TBI group and 13% in the moderate TBI group, and most of the deaths occurred in the first week. At two weeks post-injury, 12.4% of the severe group had a favorable outcome, and 0.7% had a good outcome, which they defined as a goes of 7 or 8, and those sort of, you know, to the high end of the scale. At three months, these percentages increased to 45% for favorable and 8.3% for good. And at 12 months, and these are the people who were the severe TBI, half of the patients had a favorable outcome and 12.5% had a full recovery, a GOES score of eight. So not seven or eight, but eight. In the moderate TBI group, the percentages with favorable outcome increased from 41% at two weeks post-injury to 75% at 12 months, and by one year, 35% had a good recovery and almost 20% had a full recovery. In a more nuanced look, by 12 months, approximately half of the patients who started out with severe TBI and about two-thirds of those who started out with moderate TBI required no assistance at home or with sort of day-to-day activities like shopping or traveling. Among the 80 patients, this is crazy, 79 patients, who were in a vegetative state at two weeks, only 22% died at 12 months, and of the remaining survivors, 84% regained consciousness at three months and 100% at 12 months. And further, at one year, 25% of these patients who were in a vegetative state at two weeks had regained orientation and had a favorable neurologic outcome. So limitations of this paper include that it was not a consecutive sample of patients from each site, introducing some potential for selection bias. Although the GOES is a commonly used primary outcome, it cannot be translated to measuring functional independence, right? It's sort of still a gross scale. And all the data comes from urban level one trauma centers where they have a bunch of experts who are working on these people, neurocritical care, et cetera, et cetera. But still, 
these numbers are way higher than I thought they would be sort of before I read this paper. Yeah. So I just thought it was interesting because we see these people a lot. And I think we see people in these devastating injuries and we just kind of talk to families and we're like, it doesn't look good. I'm not saying be overly optimistic, but it doesn't look as bad as I thought. Right. My take home on this is severe TBI at a year, half of them, if you don't die, right, this is only the survivors, if you don't die, half of them have a favorable neurologic outcome. That's encouraging. These are people with GCSs of three to eight, so yeah. really messed up folks. That is a shockingly high number, and that's really interesting and gives me a little sort of little extra oomph when you're treating those folks. Edit this commentary. In the track TBI study, the authors describe a more optimistic view of recovery from traumatic brain injury than was previously thought to be the case. At one year post-injury, about half the patients with severe TBI and two-thirds of the patients with moderate TBI were able to function independently for at least eight hours a day, and perhaps the most compelling finding was among the patients who were in a vegetative state at two weeks, as 25% of them had favorable outcomes at one year. This paper changes the way I think about prognosis for TBI, and while I don't want to be overly optimistic, I think it will reshape discussions I have with patients and their family members. Abstract number four, hydronephrosis severity clarifies prognosis and guides management for emergency department patients with acute ureteral colic by Ines et al. in CGEM, the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this is a really interesting paper. The basic question is, you know, sort of, when I see hydronephrosis, should I be concerned that the stone is really big and or is likely to require a procedure to facilitate passage? Or I guess put alternatively, what's the sensitivity and specificity of hydronephrosis for identifying a large stone or the need for a urologic procedure? It's a really good question and one that I find myself walking through with our residents practically every day. Yeah, because you know, Mike and I trained in an era of no ultrasound, and yeah. now we are dinosaurs in that regard. Yeah. And our residents will ultrasound patients with suspected renal with colic 100% of the time. Yeah. yeah, it's even before you check for CVAT. Yeah. And you know, they show me these findings. Like Sometimes I'll see hydro in like a really well-appearing patient. I'm just thinking we've discharged them after mm-hmm. like some you know, NSAIDs or something, and now I'm stuck. Okay. You know? Well, yes, it gets a little confused. It gets me confused. Right. And knowing the test characteristics will be helpful. Right. So the authors here identified all the cases of renal colic seen in the ED of nine hospitals in Canada based on ICD-9 diagnosis. So they looked through their medical records and found everybody who had a renal colic as a diagnosis and found those cases. All of the patients to be included in the study had to have a CT-proven stone because they needed to be able to measure it and such. So this is an important feature because it introduces probably a, a, what's a spectrum bias, right? Only the more severe cases will have gotten a CT. The really benign cases may have been just discharged without that. So in this regard, the estimates of stone size and the failure of stone to pass are probably biased upward. They then reviewed all the CT findings and qualified the degree of hydronephrosis, and they qualified it as none and mild, moderate, and severe hydronephrosis, and then finally determined the stone's size and its location. Ultimately, the outcome of interest was the failure of stone passage as determined by the patient needing a lithotripsy, stenting, or some other urologic intervention within 60 days. They started with 5,500 cases, of which 3,200 had confirmed ureteral stone by CT scan. So that's the population cohort, 3,200 cases. 
some of the top line findings. And frankly, the top, well, all the findings are pretty interesting. Most of the people had no or mild hydronephrosis. Proven stones, most had no or mild hydro. The no was 13% and the mild was 51%. So combined, it was about 64%. 32% had moderate hydronephrosis and only 4% had severe hydronephrosis. Most stones were in the distal ureter. 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 Some, I have heard people say ureter, but it is ureter and menchine brain. And 26% had it in the proximal section. In terms of the outcomes, overall, 38% of the sample had stones greater than or equal to 5 millimeters, which actually is a little bit higher than I would have guessed. An increasing degree of hydronephrosis was associated with a higher proportion of large stones. For example, 27% of patients with no or mild hydronephrosis had a large stone, so a stone greater than 5 millimeters compared with 53% of those with moderate hydronephrosis and a whopping 72% of those with severe hydronephrosis. So I don't think that that's earth-shattering that, you know, more hydro is probably generally associated with bigger stones. What about urologic procedures? Overall, 22% of the sample required a urologic intervention to help the stone pass, which again varied by the degree of hydro. The no or mild hydro group had an intervention rate of about 18%, while the moderate group, the intervention rate was 29%, and the severe hydro group was 45%. And again, remember, these findings of the hydro are actually CT findings of hydro, but I think because of previous research, we can say that CT, at least roughly and probably pretty well, correlates with POCUS findings of hydronephrosis. So what does all this mean? These findings translate to very poor test characteristics for hydronephrosis, particularly for predicting the need for urologic intervention. For any hydronephrosis, the positive likelihood ratio for predicting the need for a urologic intervention is 1.07, which is terrible. The negative likelihood ratio is 0.6. For moderate to severe hydro, the likelihood ratio positive is 1.35. For severe hydronephrosis, only severe hydronephrosis, the likelihood ratio positive is 2.5, which is really, really poor. Normally, we'd like to see a likelihood ratio of at least 5 and probably 10 for it to significantly alter the management. All this is to say that the degree of hydronephrosis is roughly correlated with stone size and passage failure, but only weakly so. The authors in this paper suggest that patients with no or mild hydro on POCUS or whatever, should get a trial of passage without additional imaging or urologic referral. This actually represents about two-thirds of all the cases that have no or mild hydro. Those with severe hydro should get a CT or be referred to urology. And again, this only occurs in 4% of the cases. And those with moderate hydro, which is about a third of cases, should just be considered for CT or whatever. Well, generally speaking, I'm not offended by these sort of recommendations. I generally think that these data show that all these patients should be offered a trial of passage first, since the majority in each group, even the severe hydro, pass without intervention, and CT should really be reserved for people with either uncertain diagnosis, you just, maybe you're worried it's a AAA or something like that, or those who have failed to pass the stone. 
Well, I think, you know, what this paper, and I agree, it seems like they, you know, they didn't totally overstate their findings. There is a general trend there. But I'm just, for me, I'm still trying to figure out how ultrasound sort of adds to the overall clinical picture. Absolutely. Which they don't tackle here at all, right? Because like, if a patient still has, you know, vomiting or intractable pain or something, they're going to get a CT, you know. So if I just use those clinical characteristics to decide who's going to get a CT as opposed to, or referral as opposed to the ultrasound, then what am I cooking with? You know, am I doing better? Am I doing worse? Would some combination be helpful? You know, I don't know. I don't even know how I would use an ultrasound in isolation of these clinical findings, which is kind of how they present their data. Well, they present, yes, in terms of hydronephrosis. Yeah. I, I And I agree with you. I mean, there are people who who love it and all these things. And I have a whole thing that I do about CT stone or, or stones and such. For me, the tremendous value of ultrasound is when there's you're sort of ambivalent about the diagnosis. You're like, I think it's probably a stone, but the guy's 70, you know, and you put the the probe on there and you see moderate hydronephrosis, I'm feeling really good about that situation. Yeah. You know, I like, like I like okay. that take on it. Yeah. Instead of trying to decide if he needs a, you know how to get her to use your CT or it's something. It's not about that, predicting, yeah. for that patient, it's not about predicting the stone size. Or It's about, yeah, this guy appears to have hydro in the context of renal colic, something that looks like renal colic. I'm very confident that this is not something else that yeah. he's going to drop dead To use of. it to sort of confirm your pretest. Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, it's like we talk about all these things with, with, you know, the guy has flank pain ultimately. He doesn't have kidney stone. He has flank pain or the woman has flank pain. And we just want to make sure that it's not something devastating. Yeah. That's our primary objective in emergency medicine for these folks. The rest of it's just pain management and, you know, an outpatient follow-up. But how secure are you in that diagnosis? When the person's 32 years old and they've got blood in their urine, I don't need any kind of ultrasound to help me uh, pretty much. But people uh, do it. I understand that's, that. And then you can get confused based on what you find. You don't see hydro and now you're like, oh, well, what am I going to do? You right. know, so. And absolutely. And in that case, I would say, but I'm not worried about potentially any alternative diagnosis. So I should be reassured that I don't see hydro. That must mean. But that- you're just thinking about it differently. Yeah. I think than a lot of people out mm-hmm. there, you know, is that you're thinking about it as sort of confirming what you already think and sort of using it to not to worry about other diagnoses, right? right? Whereas a lot of people are looking to like say, this can help me confirm or rule out a kidney stone. I think right. that's wrong. Uh, I mean, I, I, think I, I think we're dancing around the general point. You know, well, that, see how confusing yeah, this is. It really, you got to ask yourself the right question with any diagnostic test. Like, what are you trying? What question are you trying to answer? You know, and for me, with what usually the first question I'm trying to answer with any kind of ultrasound of the the renal system is. Is it something else, right? And if I see hydro, I'm I'm reassured that it probably isn't something else, you know. And you probably put that probe over the aorta at the same time to make sure it's not that big bad thing. If you're looking at it for like I want to predict stone size, then I think that's a little bit weird. I frankly think that's weird in emergency medicine that we care so much about the size of the stone or whether they're likely to need a urologic procedure in the coming several weeks. Yeah. Anyway, I know it's kind of a winded discussion on this one, but yeah. this is a confusing topic yeah. that a lot of people talk about. And it seems like it's still a little bit confusing. Editor's commentary. This is a nice article that gives some quantitative estimates of the relationship between the degree of hydronephrosis and the probability of large stone or failure of passage of this stone. 
the chance of spontaneous stone passage is correlated with the size of hydronephrosis. However, relatively few patients have moderate, 32%, or severe hydronephrosis. And even in those groups, the majority pass the stone without intervention. Further, in the group with low or mild hydronephrosis, a substantial minority, 18%, do not pass the stone spontaneously. As such, I believe that all patients should probably undergo a trial of stone passage with referral to CT scanning and or urology reserved for those who fail to pass the stone initially. Abstract number five, effect of seven versus 14 days of antibiotic therapy on resolution of symptoms among afebrile men with urinary tract infection, a randomized clinical trial, and this is by Draconja et al. from JAMA. So although choosing the correct antibiotic and using antibiotics only when needed are sort of the hallmarks of good antibiotic stewardship programs, correct duration of therapy for an infection also plays a major role. There's been some good data over the last several years teaching us that we can shorten courses of antibiotics for infections ranging from things like pneumonia to cellulitis to urinary tract infection in women. However, the same level of evidence does not exist for determining optimal duration of therapy for UTIs in men. The authors of this study conducted a randomized placebo-controlled non-inferiority trial of 7 versus 14 days of antibiotics among men with a clinically diagnosed UTI who were prescribed either 7 to 14 days of either Cipro or Bactrim by their treating clinician. They excluded patients with fever and those who had been treated for a UTI within the previous two weeks. The patients who consented continued the antibiotic prescribed by their treating clinician for seven days. So for the first seven days, they just said, do what your doctor said to do. And then on the next day, day eight, they were randomized to receive either. So they were supposed to throw away the rest of whatever they had, if they had something. And they were randomized to either receive continued antibiotic therapy N in that group was 136, or placebo, also an N of 136 for days 8 to 14 of treatment. So in essence, they could have changed the treating physician's treatment plan. The primary outcome was resolution of symptoms, and the non-inferiority margin was set at 10%. They had multiple secondary outcomes, including recurrence of symptoms assessed at 28 days. Study was conducted at two VA hospitals, and the follow-up rate that they say in the paper was 100%. It's the VA, man. 100%. We all know those guys are hanging out there. Yeah. They're just like... So resolution of UTI symptoms occurred in 93.1% of patients in the 7-day group versus 90.2% of patients in the 14-day group in the per-protocol analysis, which is within the non-inferiority margin, and in 91.9% versus 90.4% in the intent to treat. So they give both and both meet their non-inferiority. Recurrence of UTI symptoms at 28 days occurred in 9.9% of the 7-day versus 12.9% of the 14-day group. Adverse events occurred in about 20% of the 7-day group versus about 24% in the 14-day group, most commonly diarrhea. There were also no differences between groups when they looked at different antibiotic used. So, you know, seven days of Cipro enough, but not for, you know, the Bactrim or something like that. Culture results when available or the amount of bacteria. So they looked at that as well. So they they had rip-roaring UTI or something like that, or the site of enrollment between the two different sites. 
Some limitations here include that this was a pragmatic trial with a clinical diagnosis as the entry criteria, right? So if some patients actually didn't have a UTI at all, maybe they said, I think you have a UTI, take some antibiotics, this would bias towards seeing no difference, obviously, at least in terms of the efficacy endpoint. Sure. The non-inferiority margin to me seems a little large, 10%. I'm not sure. They kind of said we just pulled it out of thin air a little bit. And we also don't know if they took the meds as instructed, right? We just have no clue about that at all. Now, they do call this thing a randomized control trial, and I get it, you know, because they sort of randomized on day eight, but it's like a weird way to think about an RCT as well. You know, one other question I have is, they, I mean, they, they talk about some of the exclusion stuff. They didn't enroll a febrile men. They didn't really talk about if they looked, you know, for evidence of prostatitis or something like that, because that might influence, if, or if some of them had it, some didn't. They don't really talk about that at all. They just say you had to have a diagnosis of UTI. Probably they didn't have prostatitis, otherwise they would have diagnosed them with prostatitis. But I think it's a really well-done study at the end of the day. It's a clever way to randomize people Mm -hmm. after the first week. At least it allowed them to capture more patients because they didn't have to have somebody sitting there in the doctor's office like waiting to enroll people. And I think it's good evidence that probably we can treat these patients with a week of antibiotics. Editor's Commentary In this non-inferiority trial among adult males with afebrile UTIs, seven days of either Cipro or Bactrim was found to be non-inferior to 14 days in regards to resolution of symptoms and similarly low rates of clinical recurrence at one month. Abstract number six, comparison of greater occipital nerve and supraorbital nerve block methods in the treatment of acute migraine attack a randomized double-blind controlled trial by Hokanek et al. in clinical neurology and neurosurgery. And anyone who knows me knows I love me some greater occipital nerve blocks for headaches. He loves sticking needles in the heads of people who already have a headache. (laughs) You know it. Because the thing about it is that when you take the needle out, they always feel better. Two wrongs make a right. That's right. They're like, oh, I have a bad headache. I'm like, oh, let me see. Really? Let me stab it. Is it it 10 out of 10? They're like, 10 out of 10. You can't make that worse. You stab it. And they're like, oh, I guess it wasn't 10 out of 10. Then you pull it out and they're like, oh, it's 8 out of 10, I guess. And you're like, boom, nailed it. Solved. Next patient. (laughs) So we've covered several papers over the years examining this technique for migraine headache treatment, including in the ED setting a couple. Overall, the results have been favorable, though the exact pharmacophysiology of this block is very unclear. Recently, we did cover one paper that tempered my enthusiasm as it showed that the greater occipital nerve block had similar or lower success compared with metoclopramide for acute migraine attacks with the authors even sort of suggesting that maybe the greater occipital nerve block is just a placebo. These authors here took offense to that, apparently. And so these authors are from a single site in Turkey, and they perform a whopper of a study examining the greater occipital nerve and supraorbital nerve block alone and in conjunction with one another for the treatment of acute migraine in the ED compared with sham placebos. So it's awesome. So it's a great design. A nurse screened patients for eligibility, and those who met these migraine, you know, some International Headache Society definition of migraine, with or without aura, were eligible. There were 200 eligible patients, and for some reason, only 128 were randomized to one of the four arms, and they don't really explain exactly why that is. But there are four arms, 128 patients. Each subject got two injections. 
one in the greater occipital nerve area and one in the supraorbital nerve area. The injections could either be saline or lidocaine. So the groups end up being greater occipital nerve block with lidocaine and a supraorbital nerve sham, or the reverse of that, a greater occipital nerve sham and a supraorbital nerve lidocaine. Both nerves could have gotten lidocaine or neither nerve gotten lidocaine. They both got saline. So it's a greater occipital nerve, supraorbital nerve, sham sham, or both. Again, 128 patients were randomized. Average age was 35. The mean pain score at baseline was uh, 75 on the visual analog scale. So, you know, pretty significant pain. The active treatments had dramatically greater improvement in their visual analog pain score than the placebo. The placebo dropped by 9.9 on the visual analog scale, which is not even clinically significant. We usually think you have to have a drop of at least 13 millimeters on that scale to reach clinical significance. But the active treatment arms dropped by an average of 55. So huge drop. For the greater occipital nerve block alone, the drop in VAS was 54. For the combined greater occipital nerve block and supraorbital nerve block, the mean decrease was 59. So basically the same. For supraorbital block alone, it was 42. So not, as, not quite as good as the greater occipital nerve block. Rescue meds were used infrequently in the nerve block group, approximately 2 to 20%, depending on which of the three nerve block sort of arms you were in, compared with 74% of the time in the people who got sham sham placebo. The authors then, you know, they also show sort of the, if you will, survival curve or the pain curves over time, and they show that the nerve block groups had very evident reductions in pain almost immediately, certainly by 30 minutes. So this is definitely fair to good evidence that the nerve blocks, particularly the greater occipital nerve block, have an important non-placebo effect on headache pain reduction, for or at least migraine headache pain reduction. It does not provide information on how this strategy fares against other standard medical therapies, other medical therapies, or how it might fare in combination with other medical therapies, but I love it. Thank you very much, Dr. Hokanek, for proving what I have thought for a long time that these things really work. Obviously, much more to be known about you know, other headache types, whether the supraorbital nerve block really adds anything, or you could just do the greater occipital nerve block, but this is strong evidence. Yeah. My only comment on this one is that I'm surprised you didn't make it a paper chaser because I know how much you love these. I love it so, so much. Editor's commentary. This is a first-in-kind study looking at the utility of combined greater occipital nerve block and supraorbital nerve block for the treatment of acute migraine in the ED compared with sham placebo. The results strongly support the greater occipital nerve block with weaker evidence favoring the supraorbital nerve block or combined greater occipital and supraorbital nerve block. These results should be tempered by the small size of the study. Abstract number seven, outcomes after ultramassive transfusion in the modern era, an Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma Multicenter Study. And this is by Mathay et al. from the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. So balanced transfusion ratios have been shown to improve outcomes in trauma patients with life-threatening hemorrhage, and the one-to-one-to-one ratio has become the base of most hospital massive transfusion protocols. However, Less is known about patients requiring ultra-massive transfusion, 
which is defined as transfusion of more than 20 units of PRBCs in 24 hours. And that's a lot of units. Yeah. Now, these events are pretty rare. You know, we won't see these patients very often. But you need to remember that even in like sort of the, you know, the PROMIT and PROPER trials, which are the game changers for this one-to-one-to-one, most of the patients in there didn't actually end up getting even massive transfusion. Most were transfused less than 10 units of PRBCs in 24 hours. Even the big data we have, if not that many had massive, very few had this ultra-massive category. And when they do occur, patients have a super high mortality rate, and you could imagine emptying your hospital's blood supply, especially platelets, just to deal with one of these patients, right? So knowing if the ratios still matter at this high level of transfusion is relatively important. So this is an EAST multi-center retrospective study of 461 trauma patients from 17 centers who got greater than or equal to 20 units of PRBCs in 24 hours performed between 2014 and 2019. So this is after the establishment of the one-to-one-to-one ratio at all these different trauma centers. As you can imagine, the patients were sick. Mean ISS was 33. Median age was 35 years. They were transfused a mean of 29 units of PRBCs. There was almost no comorbidities among the group or anticoagulation use. 32% got a thoracotomy. 10% got Reboa. Mortality was 46% at 24 hours and 65% at any point in the course. So this is a pretty sick cohort. Not surprising. They got 30 units of blood. On multivariate logistic regression, transfusion of RBC to FFP ratios of greater than or equal to 1.5 to 1, so unbalanced, or RBC to platelet ratios greater than or equal to 1.5 or 1, were significantly associated with mortality. Patients with the unbalanced platelet ratios did worse than patients with the unbalanced FFP ratios. But the 18% of patients who received both RBC platelet and RBC FFP ratios that were unbalanced did the worst. An odds ratio of 3.11 and 2.81 for mortality at 24 hours and sort of the duration of their hospital course, respectively. Now, some things to think about here is that all of the patients in this cohort had to survive long enough to get 20 units, because that's how you got in. So if you were like on track to get 20 units, you got like 18 units in the first six hours or something, and then died, you didn't get in the cohort. So they were functionally excluded. And it's unclear to me how including those patients would impact finding, because for us, there's no way to know up front who's going to survive and who's not. Like if you're on track for ultramassive and you don't get there, you know, knowing how those numbers kind of impact on those people is pretty important, and we just don't have sort it. Sort of like an intent to treat analysis versus a per- protocol analysis. I intended to keep you up yeah, there. Yeah, but I didn't, you didn't yeah, make you it, didn't make you know. It. So the observed higher mortality among the patients who got unbalanced ratios, they might be due to the ratios that, you know, it's possible, I guess. Or they might be due to some other unmeasured variable like trauma resources and personnel. Maybe they didn't have the people around to sort of enforce the ratios and make sure everything got done. Or they may have said, this guy is going to die. You know, very sick. Let's pump the brakes a little bit on platelets. We don't have that many left. We're running a little short or whatever it is. You know, we just, we have no idea. Like why they got the ratio is just an association. So they try to say there's some causation here, but at the end of the day, it really is yeah. just an association. I was kind of wondering, you know, they had a lot, there's a lot of patients that got ultra massive transfusion, like, you know, 400 some patients, whatever it was. 
might have been nice instead of just the less than 1.5 and to do some cut points, you know, like 1.25, 1.52, you know, if they're really unbalanced. A lot of the other studies like yeah, well, this the, have that's more done that. If you're trying to find then a causal more, inference. Then it's more convincing. Yeah, if you, you know? see a dose-response relationship or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they don't make an effort for a dose-response. Yeah. I would have liked to see it, but, yeah. you know, this is a pretty sick cohort of pain. Not going to see another study on ultra-massive transfusion in the near future, I don't think. Edit this commentary. In this observational study looking at the unusual cohort of trauma patients who received more than 20 units of PRBCs in 24 hours, overall mortality was high and unbalanced transfusion ratios were associated with worse outcomes. Survival bias may have impacted their findings and a trial would be needed to prove causation. But for now, most of the evidence supports one-to-one-to-one ratios for patients we predict will need massive transfusion whether it turns out to be super massive or not. Quick take. Abstract number eight, acute vestibular syndrome. Is skew deviation a central sign? Question mark. This is by Corda et al. And it's in the Journal of Neurology. So a lot's been made of the HINTS exam, and we've covered some of this on EMA. Basically, you know, it's the head impulse test, test of, uh, or examination of nystagmus, and the test of skew. Most of the time we spend or we've spent certainly here, and I think in the clinical areas, we spend discussing the significance of the corrective saccade or lack thereof with the head impulse test. We also obviously frequently discuss the qualities of central nystagmus compared with peripheral nystagmus, whether it's vertical or direction changing, etc. The black sheep of this family, the one that we don't like to talk about too much, is this test of skew, which is a vertical readjustment of the eyes when one is uncovered. And this is alleged to be a diagnostic finding for a central cause of vertigo. I don't think many of us have ever seen it. I'm not sure. Have you? A positive test of skew? This stuff just makes my brain hurt. I, we talk about this on here. I, you know, I, spend I a lot, do this. On, like, I spend a lot of time with Mike, and he loves talking about these things. And I still forget like what, what's supposed to skew, what's not supposed to skew. <laughs> this one is probably the most confusing. This is the one. Well, it's, okay, and we'll get into why. But anyway. The other beauty of it, and I personally clinically don't think I've ever really seen it. I'm not sure, but I don't think I've ever really seen it. And I've looked it up on YouTube a bunch of times to see what it looks like. And the YouTube videos of it are like not ultra convincing. There aren't very many of them, and they're not ultra convincing when you sort of take a look at it. And part of that is because some people have argued that it's only really accurate when done with specialized video equipment that literally measures, you know, how much your pupil rotates up when the eye is covered yeah, something uncovered. a human cannot do. Right, not very well. So these authors are from Bern, Switzerland, and they challenge the notion that the test of skew is specific to central vertigo. Ergo, they say, this thing might happen in peripheral vertigo, making the whole point of like getting all agitated about it irrelevant anyway. Over a five-year period, from 2015 to 2020, these authors conducted a prospective study of patients with acute vestibular syndrome in the ED. They screened some 1,700 patients with dizziness, of which 152 were confirmed to have an acute vestibular syndrome. And remember, that's characterized by continuous dizziness, nystagmus, and a gait disturbance or balance disturbance. Of that 152, 77 of them underwent all the procedures that they needed to do to like, get everything done. And that included a detailed HINTS examination with video test of skew as well as caloric testing by something called 
a neuroautologist, which is a specialty. Is that a something? You said something, or is it a someone? Well, they didn't specify whether it was a thing or a one. I believe, in fact, you're correct. It's a someone who has a specialty either coming from neurology into otolaryngology, or perhaps they started as an ENT doc and became a neurologist. I don't know, but it's a specialist who did all this kind of stuff. All of these patients also had to have an MRI, like I think it was a couple of weeks later, and that served as the the gold standard for whether they had had a central stroke or not. And I will now cut to the chase. 53 of the 77 patients had a peripheral cause and 24 had a stroke. The authors found that the video test of skew was 25% sensitive for picking up the stroke, not very good, but only 75% specific. And again, this was previously sort of said that like this is like always a central cause. So a fair number of people who had this on this video analysis had a peripheral cause of their symptoms and not a central cause. Importantly, clinically apparent test of skew. So this is when you don't use the video machine to measure. And they define that as a greater than or equal to three degree vertical rotation of the eye when it's covered and uncovered was less sensitive, right? Because that's a bigger skew deviation. It only occurred in 15% of those who had a stroke, but it was actually very specific, 98% specific. Not 100%, but 98% specific. However, those that had that, that clinically evident test of skew, they also had abnormalities of the other elements of the HINTS exam, suggesting that the test of skew in isolation didn't add anything to the differentiation between whether it was central or peripheral. Ultimately, the authors conclude that clinical and video test of skew offer little, if any, additional diagnostic value compared with the head impulse and nystagmus evaluation, which is great because I'm still not sure I'd know it if I saw it. Yeah, these things will continue to confuse me. I'm glad you cover them pretty frequently because I always listen and like for a little bit, I'm like, oh yeah, 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 I, I kind of get it. You got to see a couple cases and they yeah. are so uncommon. You know, what's funny is that last time I covered one of these things in detail, in the next couple of shifts, I had two patients with classic acute vestibular syndrome and they had all the stuff and I took pictures of it with videos with the residents and see, everything. Unfortunately, unfortunately, recently I've been thinking about this more than I would like to because you know, uh, this can be a little bit of a, it takes a second to get there, but, you know, we're trying to teach our little girl, Raya, like to have good manners, okay. you know, which is a struggle. Yeah. And so now every time she gets up from the table, she always says, may I please be excused, right? And she's been doing that for like a month now, something like every time. She's very good about it, right? But, you know, Raya's a spicy one, right? Mm -hmm. So just in the last week, she has decided to change it to, may I please be askew, <laughs> which she says very subtly, and then laughs hysterically for like the next five minutes because she knows she's not saying it exactly right. And I have to say, what'd you say? And she says, Matt, please be askew. <laughs> so now I just think about this word skew all the time. <laughs> well, you got to test her and see if she, she asked to be askew. You go yeah. and test to see. This is, this is Rhea, the you are not askew. Yeah, this is the test of skew in the Aurora household. Oh, boy. <laughs> Editor's commentary. Abnormal test of skew, one of three elements of the HINTS exam, is rarely seen in central causes of acute vestibular syndrome, somewhere between 15 and 20% of the time, and can be abnormal in patients with peripheral cause of acute vestibular syndrome, 
particularly if the skew deviation is relatively small. Overall, this paper suggests that the test of skew is probably the least useful element in the HINTS exam and may offer no additional information over the head impulse test and nystagmus evaluation at all. Abstract number nine, IV insulin for the management of non-emergent hyperglycemia in the ED. This is by Koskal et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So when a patient comes into the ED with hyperglycemia, our job is to rule out DKA. That's the big one. Once it has been established that the patient is not in DKA, then we need to make the decision of whether or not we are going to lower the blood glucose level, aka treat a number, with insulin, and if so, to what level are we going to lower it to? Now, it's clear that long-term complications of diabetes can be mitigated through very tight glucose control. That's very clear. What's not clear is that short-term glycemic control has any benefit at all, right? So a patient could be like running at 250, 300, 350 all the time. So bringing it down to 100 so your chart looks good for a few seconds may not actually do any good for the patient. I thought there was abundant evidence that it did no good, to be honest. But <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to at least start with an optimistic <laughs> okay. view of what, in case people are doing this. So IV insulin will lower a patient's blood glucose level. We can all agree on that. Let me take notes on this. Yeah, but it is not- Insulin, low, down arrow glucose. There you go. But it is not a benign therapy and carries real risks of iatrogenic hypoglycemia and hypokalemia in addition to the potential for a prolonged ED length of stay. But the incidence of these things has not been that well described for patients in the ED specifically. So this was a single-center retrospective chart review study of adult patients not in DKA who were given IV insulin at the discretion of the treating provider and then discharged home. The chart review methods are scant, and that, that is a generous term. There really is no methods at all. It's like three sentences for the methods of the whole paper. Basically, just says they did a manual review. Interestingly, they did exclude patients who had a potassium of greater than five at the beginning. So I guess they were like, well, you know, probably aren't going to get hypokalemia, but you still could get hypoglycemia. <laughs> you know, you still could get the other thing. I'm not sure why they did. Well, they might have done it because it was hard to differentiate whether they were treating the hyperglycemia versus treating the hyperkalemia. Yeah, that could be true. I guess that's I, a I good might, point. I might, I might, I, I could, I could buy that. I'd like them to explain that, but they I, didn't because there's could, no methods. Yeah. But that was a lot of patients. That was like 800 patients who got excluded, right. and they only had 400 in the final study cohort. 209, or 51% of the patients, received low-dose insulin, which was less than or equal to 5 units, and then about the same, about 50%, received high-dose insulin, greater than 5 units, to manage a median ED glucose of 447 milligrams per deciliter. ED length of stay was similar between the two groups, but a greater reduction in blood glucose level was seen in the high-dose group, 213 versus 158. Now, this may be due to a higher efficacy. They got more insulin, blood glucose goes down more, or it's possible that the high-dose group had a higher initial glucose levels. So they had more room to drop, but the initial doses are not given. 8% of the patients developed hypokalemia, and 5.4% actually got potassium replacement. So they are mm. saying those are iatrogenic hypokalemias for sure. They only had two patients, or 0.4%, who developed hypoglycemia, and only one, or 0.2%, that got IV dextrose. 
In my mind, I think these numbers represent sort of a best case scenario for giving IV insulin to these people. For potassium, 70% of patients did not have a post-insulin level potassium drawn, right? So it's possible that more had hypokalemia. And 10% of the patients about that didn't have a post-insulin glucose level drawn. It's also a little bit strange, right? You have somebody, you give them IV insulin and don't check a sugar afterwards. That's very suspicious. Pretty suspicious. Additionally, we don't know if there were other interventions for a low sugar, right? Like maybe somebody got orange juice or sandwich or something like that. And there's no way to know if they developed hypoglycemia after discharge, which has been well documented. You know, somebody got IV insulin in the ED to treat a sugar of 300 and then go pass out in the bus on the way home or something like that. And also, you know, the length of stay comparison, because then I talked about that a lot, length of stay was for high dose versus low dose insulin, the difference and not versus no No dose dose insulin, which is, you know, what you really want to know. So this is not painting a pretty picture for IV insulin. I don't think, you know, there's some methods issues here that make me not believe the numbers, but I believe the message. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective chart review, the authors report a hypokalemia rate and hypoglycemia rate of 7.9% and 0.4% respectively for hyperglycemic patients not in DKA given IV insulin in the ED. Due to several method flaws, these numbers are certainly underestimates, but the message is clear that there is simply no benefit to the practice of treating a number to buff your chart. Only harm can come of it. Abstract number 10, effect of a restrictive versus liberal blood transfusion strategy on major cardiac adverse events among patients with acute MI and anemia, the reality randomized clinical trial by Ducroc et al. in JAMA. So we're seeing more and more evidence and papers suggesting that restrictive transfusion strategies are advantageous over more liberal transfusion strategies. And this is, you know, most recently, I think we covered papers demonstrating this in hemodynamically stable patients with upper GI bleed. And this is great news as it allows us to save valuable blood so that we can use it in these ultra-massive transfusion cases and avoid the hassle of blood transfusions. In the context of acute MI, the longstanding mantra was that a more liberal strategy aimed at maintaining a hemoglobin of greater than 10 is preferred because then you could deliver more oxygen to the heart. It's, you know, struggling, etc. This mantra was mostly confirmed by observational studies that showed higher hemoglobins were associated with better clinical outcomes in acute MI. The studies that underpinned this were generally criticized for confounding by concurrent illness. That is, people with low hemoglobins usually had other comorbidities compared with those who had a normal hemoglobin value. It was those comorbidities that were the true cause of the poor outcomes. Two small randomized control trials with ends of 45 and 110 yielded somewhat conflicting results, and hence this trial, the reality trial, a properly powered, non-inferiority, randomized controlled trial aimed at comparing liberal versus restrictive transfusion strategy for patients with MI. The primary endpoint was major adverse cardiovascular events, and then secondary stuff was all-cause death, etc., Eligible patients had to have an acute MI with or without ST segment elevation and an enrollment hemoglobin between 7 and 10. The restrictive group was transfused to get the hemoglobin up to 8 to 10, 
while the liberal group was transfused to get the hemoglobin up to 11. Patients in shock or those with ongoing hemorrhage were excluded, as were those who had post-procedural MI and not, you know, they got a cath and a slight troponin bump. These were patients that had, you know, chest pain and all that kind of stuff, the kind of MIs that we're used to treating. They ultimately enrolled 666 people, all of whom completed the follow-up. The mean age was 77. These are old people with MI. 30% of them had a STEMI. Pretty high proportion. 35% of those in the restrictive group received a blood transfusion compared with 99.7 in the liberal group. A total of 350 units were transfused in the restrictive group and 770 in the liberal group. So a big difference, 400 plus units of blood saved in the restrictive group. Major adverse cardiac events occurred in 11% of the restrictive group and 14% of the liberal group. So favored the restrictive group in a non-significant way. The confidence intervals did not include the inferiority margin that was selected, and therefore the restrictive group was determined to be non-inferior. Death occurred in 5.5% of the restrictive group and 7.7% of the liberal group. There's a long discussion about how the non-inferiority margin might have been too generous in this trial, and they actually set the non-inferiority margin at 25%. And Sanjay just raised his eyebrows because, you know, that's it. So they said it's not inferior if the restrictive group has no worse than 25% more adverse clinical events. When that happens, it, it's relatively easy to claim non-inferiority. I said it at 100%. <laughs> yeah, said it at 100 or a million percent, whatever. Yeah. And so that could be a problem. And in fact, the if you look at these data, and this is just you know kind of interesting, but if you look at these data, even though fewer people had MACE in the restrictive group compared to the liberal group, the confidence interval goes past one. So there's still the possibility that it could have worse outcomes than the liberal group. Now, sometimes they, they say why they set a confidence interval where they set it. Did they say in this? Yeah, one? they went through the whole thing. You know, they, they had a reason. They had a logic and they had everything else. And, you know, they're like, you know, we, this is what we chose and that's the way it is. Having said that, I find this whole part of this like fairly esoteric. It's pretty obvious when you look at it that, you know, the restrictive group is not worse than, <laughs> than the liberal group. It has a lower incidence of MACE. The confidence intervals, you know, yeah, okay, it goes past the neutrality point, but it's only the very edge of the confidence interval. The mortality is lower in the restrictive group. So overall, I think that this is pretty strong evidence. There is an ongoing, even larger trial, which will probably put to bed some of this residual controversy, but the main point is not seriously challenged. A restrictive strategy saved greater than 400 units of blood with no evidence of increased harm at a minimum, no evidence of increased harm. And, you know, that's pretty much it. So I think this is, this is pretty good stuff. We don't know. A co- there's a couple of things we don't know. We talked already about this sort of statistical piece, but we don't know how this applies to patients with STEMI versus NSTEMI. Is it even, or is there like some advantage or disadvantage to one or the other? They, don't, they didn't break that out, but maybe that's for a future examination. Editor's Commentary This is by far the largest and most rigorous trial evaluating a restrictive transfusion strategy for patients with acute MI and moderate anemia. Results demonstrate fairly convincing evidence for non-inferiority of the restrictive therapy with the benefit of fewer blood products used. 
Abstract number 11. Fascia iliaca blocks performed in the ED decrease opioid consumption and length of stay in hip fracture patients. And this is by Kola Duchik et al. from the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma. And they might win the Rick Bucato Award for telling you the findings in the title of the article. Right? Yeah, I had a couple of those this month. Yeah. But yeah, this one, it's a, it's a contender. So we've covered a few papers now on EMA and back in the paper chase days looking at fascia iliaca blocks in the ED. Generally speaking, they're thought to be effective and relatively easy to perform. This is something that even maybe I could learn how to do. Mike? I've done them. I know how to By do yourself? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I just don't do them ultrasound guided by myself. Yeah, well, that's what I was <laughs> asking. So one of the barriers to widespread implementation is some pushback from orthopedic surgeons who complain that doing this block will prevent them from doing you know, a proper neurologic exam on the hip and the patient. Either, well, does it, well, it'll wear off. Well, you know, then I can't do serial exams. I can't do what there's, you know, every once in a while you hear orthopedic surgeon not thrilled that we did this. So this paper is a prospective data collection on patients with femoral neck, IT, or subtrochanteric fractures who got an operative repair and who also got a fascia iliaca block in the ED. Importantly, the first two authors are orthopedic surgeons. And it's in their journal. It's in their journal, orthopedic orthopedic trauma. trauma. They excluded patients on anticoagulants and those with polytrauma. Not all of the ED docs working at this site completed the required training to get credentialed in fascia iliaca block, so not all patients who were eligible for one got one, creating sort of a natural experiment within their institution. During the study period, there were 65 patients eligible for fascia iliaca block, and 60% of those actually got one. There were no differences in age, BMI, type of fracture, or type of surgery performed. They don't give initial pain scores between the two groups. So we just sort of have to assume that the people who didn't get one didn't get one because the doc didn't know how to do it and not because maybe they just weren't having that much pain. So that's one assumption we have to make here. The fascia iliaca block group had significantly lower opioid consumption preoperatively 17.4 versus 32 MMEs, postoperatively, 37.1 versus 85.5 MMEs, and over their total hospital stay, 54.5 versus 117.5 MMEs, in addition to a lower opioid discharge prescription amount, 94.7 versus 130 MMEs. Also, and this is what the orthopedic surgeons were interested in, they had a shorter hospital stay by about a day, 4.3 days versus 5.2 days. So here, they found a huge impact on opioid requirements at essentially all stages of the patient's care, pre-op, post-op, and discharge, which is in contrast to a paper that we covered relatively recently, a randomized control trial that was essentially negative. Now, The difference in the findings between these two papers may be due to the fact that the one we covered before, if you remember, Mike, there was a failure of randomization, right? The people who were in the fascia iliaca block had a a lower pain score to begin with. So maybe that was the issue there. Or it could be due to some unmeasured variable between the two groups here, like Mm -hmm. baseline pain, which could be partially responsible for the findings, or due to the fact that this was a non-blinded study design. So people may have said, oh, they already got the fascia iliaca block. They don't need, you know, any morphine now. They're going to be good. So there's a lot of reasons to be just a little bit skeptical about the findings, but it's definitely worth knowing that this is a positive study by orthopedic surgeons 
in their journal. So in case you do feel any pushback on that front, this is a nice sort of piece to add. Yeah. And I do, I mean, I like this block. I'm, you know, there have been several studies of this in ED settings and and whatnot. And I think overall, the evidence tends to side with this, that it, you know, reduces morphine use and such. Not that I'm a big, don't use morphine in the ED for people with broken bones, but it is true that most of these patients are elderly and at high risk for developing delirium. And we know that either severe pain or, and or high morphine doses are um, associated with, you know, delirium, which adds a lot of problems to hospitalizations and length of stay and, you know, all sorts of issues. So if there's anything we've got that can reduce both of those things, pain and the morphine required, then I'm all in favor of it. And I routinely do this. Editor's commentary. In this non-blinded, non-randomized trial, the authors found a massive difference in opioid consumption among elderly patients with isolated femur fractures who got an ED fascia iliaca block compared with those who did not. Unmeasured variables or design issues may be responsible for some of the magnitude of the observed difference, but fascia iliaca blocks are easy to learn, they definitely work, and it is nice to see orthopedics officially on the bandwagon. Abstract number 12, effectiveness of a care transitions intervention for older adults discharged from the emergency department, a randomized controlled trial by Jacobson et al. And this is in academic emergency medicine. So care transitions are thought to be a major potential area for quality improvement. The idea basically is that after getting tuned up in an acute care setting, patients go home and a lot of information and care behaviors are just lost, basically because of miscommunication but also because the home environment can interfere with what was thought to be a good plan when you were in the hospital. And if you really knew the home environment, you could actually adjust the hospital plan to reflect the reality of how people are living. Generally speaking, this type of care transition plan and intervention has been shown to reduce early rehospitalizations after admission and dramatically improve self-care behaviors for older vulnerable patients, but this has never been studied from the ED, for ED patients that are transitioning from the acute care setting home. The authors here developed a care transition intervention whose specific aim was to reduce ED revisits among community-dwelling older adults over the age of 60. The intervention consisted of a home visit one to three days after the ED visit and up to three coaching phone calls within 28 days. The home visits were done by paramedic coaches, which were actually paramedics, like fire department paramedics, who focused on understanding red flag symptoms, follow-up recommendations, medication adherence, and then self-management strategies. The study itself is a single-blinded, individual-level randomized control trial that took place at three centers from 2016 to 2019. Eligible subjects were greater than 60 years of age not already under a care management strategy, and whose primary reason for visit was non-psychiatric in nature. Aside from that, the entry criteria were very broad and didn't have other, you know, exclusions by diagnosis, etc. The primary outcome was ED visits or ED revisits within 30 days, and secondary outcomes were knowledge of red flags, medication adherence, and attending outpatient non-ED follow-up visits. These outcomes were assessed at 30 days via phone, telephone call, and through structured chart review. It was actually a very big study, 863 patients in the intervention arm and 893 in the control arm. Ultimately, 
about 90% of the subjects completed the 30-day follow-up and chart review was performed on all of the subjects. 726 of the 863, so 85% in the intervention arm, had the home visit. So 15% were assigned to the home visit and didn't have it for some reason. The intervention basically did not work, unfortunately. 12.8% of the control had an ED revisit and 12% of the intervention group, obviously not statistically significant. In the intent-to-treat analysis, follow-up visits, red flag knowledge, and medication adherence was the same between the two groups. The authors then performed a per-protocol analysis because they said, you know, 15% of the people never got the home visit. How could we possibly, you know, how could they benefit from such a thing? Which is, you know, I guess it's fair, but it's when you're deciding whether to do an intervention, you don't know a priori who's going to not get it or not. Anyway, when they looked at the per-protocol analysis, there were a few hints that the intervention was associated with improved red flag knowledge and 30-day outpatient follow-up, but not ED revisits. And it was pretty marginal. You know, the confidence intervals were really close to one. Because you imagine if this thing gets implemented in the real world, the proportion who got the visit would probably be less, right, actually, because this, this is like we're putting trial. all of our efforts into getting these people. Right. So this is yes. So doing little, the little cheatsies. It's a know. little cheatsies. You know, overall, you know, this per-protocol analysis is, you know, it's, it's hopeful. You know, it's not yeah. convincing by any stretch of the imagination. And personally, I think this is growing pains. You know, the intervention, this idea is brand new in the ED and so much needs to be addressed in terms of who the optimal group that does the home innovations ought to be. In this case, it's paramedics. I mean, I have no idea why you would think paramedics would be a good choice here as opposed to home health nurses or ED staff, people who are used to doing this kind of home-based interventions. You know, I I just don't know why they selected that. And, you know, I'm not being critical, but it just didn't work with paramedics. Maybe it works with somebody else. Also, we really don't know how many of these ED visits were in any way preventable, right? Like maybe they all had appendicitis or something like that. You know, I mean, like then there's no way to prevent ED revisits. So that, that could be a problem. They took all comers and didn't focus on specific high-risk complaints like congestive heart failure or other conditions that are known to be sensitive to good outpatient ambulatory care. And maybe that's, you know, the next stages of this is to focus on those things and not be so general, and that might yield some better results. I still like this this type of intervention concept. We should be doing more for high-risk vulnerable patients once they leave the ED to ensure their ongoing health. And, you know, as the science develops on this, I'm going to continue to cover it. Right now, I applaud the authors for an ambitious first-pass attempt. It didn't work. That's okay. That's the nature of things. They don't work. And now we, you know, we retool and see if we can readjust the intervention or the populations that we're, that we're studying and see if you can find some actual intervention effect. Editor's commentary. This is a novel post-ED intervention which aimed to reduce ED revisits and improve other aspects of self-care following an ED visit in older adults. The intervention failed in this initial effort. However, much more studies should be performed to determine if differently modeled post-ED care visits might improve outcomes in more optimally selected vulnerable patients. Quick take. Abstract number 13. Skin tapes and tissue adhesive versus either method alone for laceration repair in a porcine model. This is by Brown et al. from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. This one's a quick take. So using adhesive tissue glue or skin tape has the distinct advantages when closing a lac 
of increasing your speed, right? You go a little bit quicker and removing the possibility of a needle stick when compared to using lidocaine, sutures, all that kind of stuff. And removing the need for the patient to come back to the ED to get stitches removed. Well, that's a good one. That's true. I didn't make my list. That's true. Multiple studies have concluded that tissue adhesives are effective in an acceptable alternative to sutures and can provide similar results with respect to cosmesis and rates of infection. But for them to work really, really well, the skin edges have to be kind of lined up perfectly, right? That's sort of how you're supposed to do these things, which can be tough to do. And if it's tough to do, then theoretically, some of the glue can kind of get into the wound and create some tissue badness. I have never seen that happen. That's the theory. That's the theory. (laughs) So skin tapes are excellent at aligning the edges, but don't maintain integrity as well as the glue. So the goal of this study was to say, hey, are these two great tastes that taste great together? This is the Reese's peanut butter cups of wound management. There you go. So this is a pig study looking at six centimeter lacerations that were closed by one of three methods. Skin tapes over some benzoin, tissue adhesives, or combination of both. Outcomes were the pounds of force needed to open wound assessed by a material strength testing system immediately after closure and at 35 days. And they have pictures of this thing, and it's just like a machine that kind of slowly pulls at both ends of the flap of skin, which they took off the pigs, until it ripped apart and measured the pounds. And it makes me think of like the, the Ivan Drago. You remember that scene in Rocky IV where he's punching the things and he's like measuring all those PSIs and Rocky's like... Carrying wood and yeah, stuff like that the, the, in, the Siber- in Siberia. Yeah, yeah, like the technology yeah. versus the... So this is like the Ivan Drago kind of a situation here. The mean force required to disrupt the tissue was higher in the combo method in both the immediate and delayed assessments to a statistically significant degree in the immediate condition. So it is How stronger. many pounds per square inch? You're not going to tell us? Uh, it was, I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, how would yeah, we be able to know? Exactly. It's t- it was like eight in eight one trillion. glue versus seven, yeah. a billion in one. <laughs> yeah, you could read. If you, I didn't write it down because it has no relevance. But that's important, actually, because it is stronger to use both. But I think the question that remains is, how much strength do you actually need, right? Like, what is the minimum strength? So it's stronger to use both, but if one, whatever strength that is enough, then that, that's all you need, right? So then it would have less clinical relevance. But I think this is a good tip if for whatever reason, you're just worried about, you can't get the edges right, or if you don't think the glue is going to be strong enough. It's like in an area with like some tension and you're just kind of like, oh, I'm on the fence about a it. a joint or something like Put that. Put a couple of stereo strips on there you know, and then glue on top of it. Just a nice little tip. Editor's commentary. In this pig-based study, the authors found the force needed to disrupt a closed wound was more for skin tape plus glue than for either method alone, both immediately after the wound closure and 35 days post-closure. My gut feeling is that just one method is strong enough for most lacerations, but I would consider using tape and then glue in areas of high wound tension or in situations where the edges might be difficult to align. Quick take. Abstract number 14, and this one's a quick take. This is diagnosis and classification of headache associated with sexual activity using a composite algorithm, a cohort study by Lynn et al., and this is in cephalgia. So this is not a good study. It's not a great study, I should say. Periodically, patients present to the ED with acute headache during sexual activity, typically occurring as a thunderclap-like headache at or around the moment of orgasm. 
the large majority of these cases will have a primary headache associated with sexual activity, which is a well-described entity. The question that typically comes up, you know, clinically for me is whether or not we should be worried about a dangerous secondary cause of headache. But estimates of how frequent these dangerous secondary causes, like an aneurysm or whatever, have been very few in the literature. This paper looks at a consecutive sample of patients in Taiwan who presented for evaluation to the ED or a neurology clinic for such headaches. Unfortunately, to be included in this study, which I didn't know until we read the paper, the patients had to have two or more of these headaches to qualify, which makes it less useful to me as a clinician in the ED. 245 patients were prospectively enrolled and surveyed. All of them got neuroimaging and follow-up neuroimaging. 70% were men. 65% described the headache as explosive, so thunderclappy. And 70% described the, the headache location as occipital. So, you know, occipital explosive headache, that sounds bad, right? Ultimately, the large majority were diagnosed with this primary headache with sexual activity, which is totally benign, and that was more than 75% of the cases. But seven of the 245, 3% were diagnosed with an important scary thing. Four of them had aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage. One of them had an internal carotid artery dissection. One had moya-moya. And one had a case of a meningioma that had hemorrhaged, hemorrhaged into the meningioma. So this paper, again, is somewhat less useful to the ED because the patients had to have more than one headache during sex, which probably increases the chance of benign headache. I mean, how many times do you get to have an aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage, right? But even in this group that's probably more benign, the incidence of serious diagnoses, particularly subarachnoid hemorrhage, is like almost at 3%, which is way too high. So for me, if it's a thunderclap headache during sex, you just have to work it up just like you would anybody else that has a thunderclap headache during whatever activity. Editor's commentary. In this small study of patients with recurrent headache associated with sexual activity, the rate of proven subarachnoid hemorrhage was just about 2%. Abstract number 15. The utility of chest radiographs in children presenting to a PEDS ED with acute asthma exacerbation and chest pain. And this is by Majerus et al. from Pediatric Emergency Care. So generally speaking, chest x-ray is a low-yield test in pediatric patients with an acute asthma exacerbation. There are actually NIH guidelines on this topic, which I didn't know, that sort of suggest when to consider getting a chest x-ray in an asthmatic patient, and they're referred to as the four Fs. Fever, focal lung exam, concern for a foreign body, and failure to improve. But these are not set in stone and actually not well supported by the literature. In fact, kids with viral infections obviously setting off their asthma probably often come in with a fever. So although previous studies have tried to find symptom or symptom complex or findings associated with positive chest x-rays, the symptom of chest pain has not been well evaluated. So this is a retrospective study from St. Louis, Missouri, of children aged 2 to 18 presenting with an acute asthma exacerbation identified by ED discharge diagnosis codes. Patients were excluded if chest pain was not specifically mentioned in the chart. And this is a little bit different than we usually see for these chart review studies. Usually if they don't say it, they'll just say, well, then it probably wasn't there. Because if they had chest pain, they would have mentioned it. So they had to say, yes, chest pain, or no to chest pain. And a chest x-ray was considered positive 
if the interpretation included findings of a pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum, single or multiple infiltrates, opacities or consolidation, or if the chest x-ray led to a clinical diagnosis of pneumonia that resulted in the ordering provider treating the patient with antibiotics when they discharged them. So of 793 patients, about a third had chest pain. 184 got a chest x-ray in total of the 793, and of those, 40% of them were on chest pain patients. Of the 184 chest x-rays that were ordered, 11.4% had a positive finding, and most of them were pneumonia. They ran a regression model and found that providers were more likely to obtain chest x-ray in patients with chest pain at an odds ratio of 2.2. Other positive predictors from their model were white race at an odds ratio of 1.7, fever at an odds ratio of 2.4, crackles, focal on the exam with an odds ratio of 5, that's the most predictive one, hypoxia at an odds ratio of 3, and being seen by an APP versus a physician at an odds ratio of 1.7. Compared with patients with no chest pain, patients with chest pain were actually more likely to have a positive finding at an odds ratio of 2. Crackles on exam was the most predictive thing of a positive finding on chest x-ray at an odds ratio of 4. Now, the authors in their conclusion and their discussion section basically say this is a negative study, not supporting the use of chest x-ray in asthma patients with chest pain, but a good portion of them did have a positive finding, right? Now, whether that was in addition to what they were already going to do clinically or something like that, we don't really know. But even in the overall cohort, 12% of the chest x-rays were positive. That's not bad. You know, that's something. Now, this probably is an undercount. Right, because like I said, they didn't include any of those charts where they didn't mention chest pain at all. Mm. Right. So maybe this is actually even better than we thought. Certainly the comparator group would be bigger, right? If you included right. the the no mention with the no specific chest pain. Now I do wish they had provided a table with positive findings by presence or absence of chest pain. They don't do that. They just give it for the overall cohort. Like for example, if they had some pneumothoraces, they had some pneumomediastinums, if those were all in the chest pain patients, I might even feel differently about the numbers just at their face value, but they don't give it. So for me, I don't know, they're saying it's negative. I'm feeling like it's kind of positive. I feel a little bit different. And if I have a patient with chest pain, I'm probably going to order a chest x-ray. At least consider it. Editor's commentary. In this retrospective chart review study of pediatric patients with an acute asthma exacerbation, the authors report that we are more likely to get a chest x-ray when a patient reports chest pain. This makes sense. They also conclude that chest pain is not highly predictive of positive findings and thus discourage the use of chest x-ray in patients with chest pain, but I'm not sure I agree. Chest pain is an unusual symptom in asthma and warrants some special attention. Maybe not a mandate for a chest x-ray, but the positive rate in this cohort seems pretty high to me, and it might be even higher if all asthma patients had been included in the denominator. Abstract number 16, high-dose buprenorphine induction in the emergency department for treatment of opioid use disorder. This is by Herring et al. and JAMA Network Open. I think this is an important study that addresses some of the technical challenges that occur with ED-based buprenorphine administration. So more and more ED providers are able to and willing to prescribe buprenorphine for patients with opioid use disorder, and this medication certainly has the potential to be a game changer. 
This paper looks at the specific issue of how to adequately initiate or induce buprenorphine in suitable patients in the ED, which is something we haven't really talked about, some of that, like the clinical implementation, if you will. Remember, one is supposed to only initiate buprenorphine once the patient shows clinical signs of opioid withdrawal. This makes sense. We shouldn't be giving buprenorphine to people who are currently high. And the the reason for that is that it's a partial agonist and you could actually precipitate withdrawal in those kind of candidates. So the classic induction pathway typically say to limit the dose, basically the patients are supposed to go home, wait till they get some withdrawal symptoms, and then give themselves buprenorphine at home. And they're supposed to limit the dose to 8 to 12 milligrams over 24 hours and repeat this over two to three days to achieve full induction. But these pathways were developed for people starting this process in an office-based setting and for patients that have substantially different follow-up capabilities, maybe disease severity, and other needs compared with ED patients. I mean, many of our patients are just different than people who go to the office to say, hey, I want to get off you know, opioids now. Yeah, and they may not even come in saying they want to get off them, right? They Absolutely. may just come in and withdraw, whereas there they might go looking for that very thing. So it's, even from like a stage of change might be different. You're exactly right. And so the concern is that these sort of lower dose pathways, maybe they're safe, but they might leave people in this withdrawal state for longer, right? Because you don't fully induce them into you know the steady bup state fast enough. And that could be actually counterproductive. It could make people who are different, you know, sort of readinesses or willingness to undergo the pain or difficulties of withdrawal. It might make them develop an adverse taste for buprenorphine. So it's, there's really some questions there. The authors here describe a single site's experience up at, um, at Highland Hospital in Alameda County, their experience with an accelerated pathway for ED patients that achieves full induction within three to four hours potentially using much higher doses of buprenorphine. The pathway starts with making sure the patient hasn't taken any substances in a while and that they are having signs of withdrawal. They're then typically given four milligrams of buprenorphine and reassessed 30 to 60 minutes later and given eight more. Okay, so now you're up to sort of 12, which is where normally you'd stop. If that does the trick, great, they're done. However, if it's not and the patient's still exhibiting signs of withdrawal, they give additional doses up to 32 milligrams total, followed by a prescription for 16 milligrams daily. So that's the high dose portion of the pathway. The study itself is retrospective chart review from 2018 with excellent methods, including abstractors being blinded to study methodology, etc., really pristine methods. Of the 580 ED visits in which bup induction occurred, 63% were high dose. And of that 63%, well, of that 366, I should say, that were high dose, 138, so a little less than half of those, were very high dose, meaning that they got over 28 milligrams of buprenorphine. So a lot of bup was given. The pathway was used by a lot of clinicians, 54 individual clinicians. So it wasn't just, you know, this is Andrew Herring, who's obviously a big advocate for bup. It wasn't just Andrew doing this and everybody else, you know, he's a super world expert in this. This was done by 100% of their APPs. So each APP that they had did at least one case. And I think it was about 90% of their attendings. So all but a couple were responsible for at least a couple of these cases. So this is really sort of broadly used in this emergency department. So what's important? 
No patient required naloxone or demonstrated any evidence of respiratory depression. So they gave all this bup. You didn't knock people out and make them stop breathing. There were five cases of precipitated withdrawal, which is about 1%, which is actually lower than what is described in the outpatient office setting, which is typically around 3%. And furthermore, four out of five of those cases got it on the initial low-dose portion. So it's not like the high-dose portion precipitated more withdrawal or anything like that. They were all managed with additional doses of buprenorphine with no apparent ill effects. Nausea and vomiting were rare and did not appear to be associated with increased buprenorphine dosing. Basically, this is a we-loved-it paper. The results suggest this practice is very safe and effective. The study is limited by its retrospective nature, and despite the excellent methodologic approach, it's still at high risk for underestimating precipitated withdrawal or other symptoms which may not have been charted. You know, if somebody's just feeling very nauseated or whatever, feeling very icky, and the nurse doesn't note it, there's no way to abstract that into the, you know, from the record. But I think this really does offer us some real-world data on this higher dose approach, which seemingly is more appropriate for ED patients who are coming in with, you know, sort of opioid withdrawal symptoms. And we can cite this as we learn how to do this in more diverse community ED settings. Editor's commentary. This relatively large chart review of ED-based buprenorphine induction demonstrates that high-dose induction with doses up to 32 milligrams appears to be well-tolerated and effective for treating opioid use disorders. Providers interested in this therapy should become familiar with this higher-dose pathway to ensure optimal treatment for their patients with opioid use disorder. House of Medicine. Abstract number 17. Public Perceptions of Physician Attire and Professionalism in the U.S. And this is by Shun et al. from Gemma Network Open. So the use of a white coat in medicine began in the 19th century and was originally meant to represent cleanliness, scientific achievement, and sort of the science side of medicine and professional responsibility. Ironically, one of the issues with white coats is that we don't really wash them. (laughs) Yeah, certainly not every day thus increasing the potential of spreading nosocomial infections and allergens and things like that from patient to patient. So in recent years, for reasons ranging from functionality to cleanliness to just being warm, more casual jackets have gained popularity, particularly in the ED. But how do patients feel about this change? The authors of this study distributed a survey via a crowdsourcing platform where respondents were asked a variety of questions about attire including how often and what locations they see healthcare professionals wearing a white coat, scrubs, a fleece blend sweater or vest, and soft-shell jackets. And then they were shown de-identified pictures of models. So if you look, you see the pictures. It's just sort of like neck down, so it doesn't say anything about their face, wearing different forms of these clothes and asked to estimate the impact of their clothes on professionalism and friendliness. Because it's a crowdsourcing platform, there's no denominator for how many people were approached for this, but they have data on just under 500 surveys. There's a lot of things in this paper. It's very, very full, and there's like 38 supplements that also have some pretty interesting information in them. Some of the highlights. Respondents perceived models of healthcare professionals wearing white coats versus those wearing fleece or softshell jackets as significantly more experienced. They use like a Likert scale, six-point Likert scale. The white coat's got a 4.9, fleece 3.1, softshell 3.1. 
and professional. White coat 4.9, fleece 3.2, softshell 3.3. Regardless of outerwear, female models in business attire as innerwear were rated as less professional than their male counterparts, and the female model versus the male model was mistaken more by respondents as a medical technician, a physician assistant, or a nurse. Interestingly, the difference and misidentification was smaller when scrubs were worn as innerwear as opposed to when business attire was the innerwear. In truth, none of these findings are especially surprising, right? People like the lay public, John Q. public, thinks white coat means you're a very experienced professional doctor. You're like top of the you know, hospital food chain. And if you're wearing like, you know, scrubs and like a hoodie, you're like a medical student or something like that. Which is, of course, the opposite. Right. Well, <laughs> well, that's what makes this paper so interesting, right, is in the discussion section, the authors don't at all suggest, hey, we need to start thinking about this. If we want to be viewed as professional, start wearing white coats again. They take the total flip approach to it, which I really, really like. What they are doing is they sort of point out and say, hey, you know, the younger respondents of the survey this difference actually wasn't as big. They sort of got it that like, you know, wearing yeah, scrubs Marcus with a Welby hoodie or is, something. Doctors don't look like Marcus Welby anymore. Yeah, they yeah. got that, right? And they're sort of saying what we really should be doing is just seizing the moment and seeing this as a chance to sort of initiate a real culture change and a change in the public. Now, they don't really say like, you know, how to go about doing this. But just sort of focusing efforts on educating the public on the fact that like a stiff, you know, bleached white coat doesn't actually mean you're the most senior person in the department, right? This could be done on like a patient by patient basis or just, I mean, you have to sort of think of way, even just the way it's portrayed in TV, like all this stuff really makes an impact. So they sort of take that approach and they specifically state this shouldn't just be a responsibility of women doctors because women are the ones who you know, suffer the most from these misperceptions and misidentifications and things, but all healthcare professionals to really, if we're going to make a long and sustained shift in the public perception of what we wear. So I think that knowing that this exists, right, the fact that if you wear, you know, like a soft shell jacket or something to work, that people might think you're a little bit less professional. You should know about that. Mm -hmm. And then all you need to do about it is maybe take an extra second to build rapport or just introduce yourself. Say, hey, I am the physician who's going to be taking care. They just may not know, right? you know, and that's okay. So just reiterate your role. But we need to remember, and I think most of us know this already, that what we wear doesn't actually translate to like our level of performance, how good a doctor we are, something like that. I think they're sort of saying here, hey, younger people are starting to catch on to this. Maybe we're in like a momentum change at this point. It's a really cool paper with a really interesting discussion section. Editor's commentary. In this survey study, the authors found that physicians wearing a white coat were more likely to be viewed as professional and experienced, and that women physicians were more likely to be misidentified in terms of their role no matter what they wore. We should be aware of what people might be thinking but instead of all moving towards wearing white coats again, we should do what we can in each encounter to let the patient know that the world is changing, and in this case, clothes don't make the man or the woman. Quick take. Abstract number 18. This is a quickish take. It's titled, Traffic Stops Do Not Prevent Traffic Deaths by Sarod et al., and it's in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. It's a great paper for the House of Medicine and or the House of Law Enforcement. 
the point here is that police traffic stops are ostensibly supposed to stop and correct bad driving in the name of public safety. However, these police activities have been criticized a lot recently because of, you know, sort of two major things that one, they seem to be most often used to increase municipal revenue, you know, give tickets, collect money. And that actually paradoxically might reduce public safety. If you got all these cops running around giving people, you know, rolling stop sign tickets instead of doing stuff that actually could improve public safety, that's a problem. And two, there's ample evidence that police traffic stops are racially biased and highly so, which obviously has nothing to do with minimizing traffic accidents or death. This study examined the association between police traffic stops and traffic deaths across the United States over time and at the state level. They used data from the Stanford Open Policing Project, which includes traffic stop data from all 50 states and traffic death data from NHTSA, you know, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And finally, an estimate of how many miles of car traffic there was in each state in each year. And that was from the Federal Highway Administrative Office. So the top line findings are fascinating. They found data on 160 million police traffic stops during the study period from 33 states. Some were excluded because things didn't line up. You know, the data files didn't line up. There was massive variation in the number of police traffic stops, ranging from a low of 0.17 police traffic stops per 100 million vehicle miles traveled in Arizona, 0.17, to 3,600 per 100 million vehicle miles traveled in Nebraska. That's right. That's a 21,000 times higher incidence of police traffic stops. Okay. There was also substantial variation in traffic fatalities across the states at different times with the low of Rhode Island, which had 0.57 deaths per 100 million miles driven, and a high in South Carolina of 2.2 per 100 million miles driven. However, there was absolutely no relationship between the number of police traffic stops per miles driven and the number of traffic fatalities per miles driven at all. There's nothing, no signal whatsoever. So there are many limitations to this study. We don't know about non-traffic injury rates or even just traffic collisions or other measures of public safety that presumably police traffic stops could reduce. We also don't know if some of these states like Arizona, which has very few police traffic stops, supplements or substitutes lots of other stuff that's like a police traffic stop, like red light cameras and things like that for police traffic stops. So we don't know if maybe they do that and that's, you know, make, makes their numbers go up and has some impact on safety. But overall, this is pretty interesting information calling into the question the value of some of these very common police practices. And now some will say, well, what does this have to do with medicine or anything like that? But, you know, we are the stewards of public health and we are often asked questions about like, you know, how various different social interventions impact public health. And so I do think it's within our sort of general scope to know that police traffic stops, at least at the state level, variation of police traffic stops don't seem to have any substantial effect on traffic fatalities. And additionally, I learned if I ever do a cross-country drive, Go I'm going to slow down during Nebraska, make up the time in Arizona. <laughs> Bingo. Editor's commentary. In this national study, state-level variation in police traffic stops was not associated with variation in traffic fatalities. 
quick take. Abstract number 19. Development and validation of an artificial intelligence system to optimize clinician review of patient records. This is by Chi et al. from JAMA Network Open. So there are some estimates suggesting that one half of our workday is spent interacting with the EHR. And I'm sure for a lot of you out there, it probably feels like three quarters or 90%. That's certainly the frustrating part. Entering orders is something we have mostly gotten used to, but searching through a patient's chart for like a specific note, a visit, a radiology or lab finding can take forever and is very, very frustrating. In this study, they describe the development and testing of an AI system designed to review a new GI patient's referral records and then estimate the impact on time savings. Basically, they trained up this AI to read PDFs, right? So because when the referral comes in, it's like a bunch of different things, not a common form, you know, so read a bunch of PDFs for things like lab findings, history, path reports, just to name a few, like look through the whole thing and then could organize it for you. That's pretty impressive that it's using PDFs and not like the internal EHR. It's not. That's that's one of the things that's really cool about this, even though it's, you know, it's GI patients, a little bit different than what we do, obviously. But 12 clinicians were then given two charts each to review, one regular, so they just got all the PDFs, you know, here's all the PDFs, and one that was AI optimized, and then asked 22 clinical questions with discrete answers. So it's like, look up the most recent lab value of X, you know, whatever it is. Some, they had 22 different questions. The AI charts resulted in an 18% time savings, which was translated 2.3 minutes, you know, so it's a couple minutes in the chart, with essentially the same level of accuracy. The physician satisfaction, when measured across multiple domains, was universally high with the AI charts. So the AI here, again, was designed to look at referral paperwork with multiple formats, no common structure, and still organized the stuff pretty well, and people liked it. Now imagine how useful this could be, like Mike said, within a single EHR, yeah. right? If you were just able to, instead of having to look through 50 notes, type in like, like, you know, you could in a big word document, search for chest pain, you know, search for like whatever it is and look back and see. They're like, I came, you know, I came one time six months ago, I think for headache, just search for the word, do some key, does all kinds of things well, you they, can I mean, imagine. AI should be able to do natural language processing. So you should be, I mean, ultimately, right? So you should be able to ask it like in just plain language. Hey, can you check through the record and see if this person ever had a workup for chest pain? Yeah. You, know, no. you should ultimately be able to do that kind of so, stuff. So, you know. Obviously, the opportunities here are just limitless. I look forward to the day when these kinds of things are integrated into our daily workflow so we can get that 50% of time spent with a chart down to 49%. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. But it'd be more interesting, 49%. Editor's commentary. In this small study from Stanford, the authors developed and tested an AI program that was able to review and synthesize findings from various types of GI referral notes with no common structure. Using the AI output saved time when answering specific clinical questions. Please develop something like this for our emergency department EHRs. The knowledge that this even could exist for us in the future makes me very happy. Abstract number 20, Physician Use of Stigmatizing Language in Patient Medical Records is by Park et al. and Gem Network Open. This is a qualitative study. The idea is pretty simple. Language matters, and it conveys relevant information, but also conveys attitudes and biases which can be quite problematic in the medical record, which is designed to be used by subsequent clinicians. Empirically, there's evidence that stigmatizing language has a direct influence 
on the readers of the medical record, even when the clinical information is essentially the same. I think you covered a paper maybe a few months ago. No, it's been a maybe, while, maybe, actually. Maybe it's been it was a couple a year. of years. Oh, really? That yeah, long? Jeez. It's, it's just a... stuck in my head because it was so interesting. Yeah, it was such a great paper where they did exactly what you said. They had two charts written out that had exactly the same clinical information. And one was full, like, ah, he's, you know, like, yelling at people and ornery. Mm -hmm. And the other one just sort of, you know, nothing but the facts, ma'am. And then they asked, how likely would you be to do X, Y, and Z? And, you know, people were, they took that stigmatizing language to heart. Yeah, they they had attitudes about the patient and even about their treatment plans based on it. So in this study, the authors sought to characterize the types of positive and negative language used in contemporary medical records with a general aim of informing physicians about how their choice of language is perceived. The authors selected a random sample of 600 notes from Ambulatory Internal Medicine Clinic affiliated with a large academic medical center from 2017. The clinician investigators read 100 medical notes at a time and logged whether there was something in the text that they felt conveyed either a negative or positive emotion about the patient. So these were clinicians. It was like, a clinician reading it going, yeah, I'm feeling like this guy hates this patient or something like that. Negative emotions included things like you know, frustration, anger, judgment, and positive emotions included things like admiration, personal investment, etc. Then through an iterative process, and this is the qualitative process, the authors generated and consolidated linguistic themes that resulted you know, in sort of these emerging themes that characterized what kinds of things were negative and positive. And they did this over and over again until there were no more themes emerging. So they kept doing 100 charts at a time, and they would find these things and then you know, continue on. And then ultimately, after about 600 charts, nothing else was emerging. The negative categories, ultimately, they, they, they found a few interesting things. They estimated that there were about 20 to 30 emotional text blocks per 100 charts reviewed. So it was pretty common that there was something that conveyed this sort of either negative or positive emotion. The negative language categories distilled down to a few things. One, questioning the patient's credibility. You know, that was one of the things that sort of emerged. They give an example of sort of things like, he claims that nicotine patches don't work for him. Two, disapproval. You know, and there's lots of examples that they give of that. Three, and very problematic, racial or social class stereotyping. And then four was the general notion that this patient was difficult, was a difficult patient. On the positive side, compliments were sometimes used, statements of approval or minimizing blame. And that's like minimizing blame is like the patient is trying to lose weight, but he finds it difficult to be able to afford food that is healthy. Right, so he's minimizing personal. Yeah, he wants blame. to exercise, right. but can't join a gym, right, or exactly. doesn't live somewhere where hip, it's safe to exercise pain outside. Is so bad that he's unable to exercise. You know, things like that where they're minimizing personal blame. Also, personalization was one of the positive themes that come out, as was a collaborative decision making. Often, comments that were felt to include negative emotions used direct quotations from the patients, and this is something the authors call a scare quote which is well known in the linguistic world. And they, they say, you know, we recognize that quotations is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be conveying the information in the patient's exact words. But that's counterbalanced by the fact that they never saw that on the positive side. It was always used 
in the context of a negative, and they give a bajillion examples of that, including some where there's racial stereotyping, where they literally put in like, the dressing was a little wet, you know, and spelled it L apostrophe I-L, clearly sort of highlighting sort of the African-American vernacular as opposed to conveying, you know, sort of useful information. The authors do not quantify which things were more common, positive or negative. They certainly imply the negative was more common, but to some extent, it doesn't matter. There shouldn't be any negative. If you want to put some positive, that might be okay, but they generally argue we got to get rid of all the negative stuff because it has this implication for downstream, the next provider. And also, we should probably be getting rid of the positive because sometimes that can be micro-invalidating or micro-validating depending on how you look look at things. Like if you consistently positively emphasize certain racial or or social classes that in effect negatively does the inverse or the other classes. So no doubt we will get emotional in the practice of medicine. We can be severely stressed. Lives may hang in the balance. And some of these patients are like really good at getting under your skin. But the important part to remember is that they're getting under your skin not the next provider's skin, and you shouldn't bias that provider going in. If there's something you need to convey, this patient is not adherent with his medication, you know, ask about medication adherence, then just do that. That's an objective medical fact. Don't use quotes that make them sound ignorant or stupid or that you disapprove or anything like that. Just make the comment and move on. So neutral language is the way to go. Yeah, this is a really, really important topic. Obviously, you know, this kind of stigmatization is, and they found it, you know, they found in all these real charts. So when I did was sort of fake charts Mm -hmm. and then made up and stuff. And I think your point about quotes for me is very well taken. There are certain things worth quoting. Like Mm -hmm. if it's about chest pain, they said it feels like quote tearing, but that's fine to do it that way. But then to sort of quote them because you're sort of have this ulterior motive of pointing out, like that's just, we just need to get away from that yeah, practice I th- I completely. Think if, I think as a, as a shortcut right here, if you're putting quotes, think about it. Make sure that you're doing it because it's For really right important yeah. to qualify this and not because you want to make them, you know, make it sound like, oh, this guy said it feels like, you know, who knows, some crazy thing. No, really uh, well said. So anyway, some of this might get resolved now that there's open medical records and we might be, you know, embarrassed or worried that patients might read some of these things. So, you know, we might be moving away from this and towards neutral language anyway, but really we should be abandoning the practice, not because it's embarrassing, but because it's bad medicine. Editor's commentary. This medical record review revealed that clinical notes often conveyed negative and positive emotions about patients. Negative emotions were typically triggered by expressions of doubting patient credibility, disapproval, stereotyping, or conveying generally that the patient were difficult. Such emotionally charged language has little place in the medical record and can serve to propagate negative interactions with subsequent healthcare providers. Welcome back, EMA listeners, to the November 2021 Ultra Summary. I'm Jess Monis, and I'm here again with our special guest, Aaron Skolnick. We had the pleasure of having Aaron join us last month, where I gave him a proper introduction. Here are the cliff notes. Aaron holds five boards, including EM, TOX, critical care, and neurocritical care. Also, Aaron and I are united in wedlock, so if we sound overly familiar, it's because we are. We will try to keep the marital spats to a minimum, 
but we do get feisty when it comes to the medical literature. Aaron, are you ready for another round? Let's get feisty. (laughs) Okay. Paper number one. Repeat head CT for anticoagulated patients with an initial negative scan is not cost-effective. Current guidelines recommend obtaining a head CT on older anticoagulated patients with head trauma. No arguments there. What to do after the scan is a bit all over the place and can range anywhere from holding folks and repeating a scan to discharging them home. The reasoning behind the more conservative approach is concern for delayed bleed, previously noted to be 0.3 to 6%. This is the largest study to date on this topic with about 1,600 patients. They were taking either anticoagulants or antiplatelet agents and all had a repeat head CT at six hours. Less than 1% had a delayed bleed, and there was a higher risk of supertherapeutic. The key point here is that none of the patients with a delayed bleed were intervened upon. The authors conclude that repeat scanning costs the systems a lot of money with no apparent benefit. This correlates with previous studies we reviewed. The take-home is that if a patient has a good support system and is not supertherapeutic, send them home. Paper number two. Bamlanivimab plus etisevimab in mild or moderate COVID-19. This study infused over 1,000 ambulatory outpatients with early mild to moderate COVID-19 with this monoclonal antibody cocktail versus placebo. Patients were at high risk for disease progression, so they were older or obese or immunocompromised. 2% of the antibody group versus 7% of the placebo group were hospitalized or died within 29 days, the primary outcome. There was a non-significant difference in mortality between groups and the average duration of illness was a day shorter in the intervention group. Unfortunately, despite some promise of the bamlanivimab etisevimab cocktail, or as I call it, Steve, (laughs) with a number needed to treat of 27 to prevent one severe disease progression, it does not work against the Delta variant and is now unavailable in states where the variant comprises more than 5% of COVID cases. So I have to say I'm very impressed with your pronunciation, and now you know why you did the even ones. Paper number three. Functional outcomes over the first year after moderate to severe traumatic brain injury in prospective longitudinal track TBI study. Before we can discuss how these patients did, it's helpful to know how sick they were to start with. The average GCS of patients with moderate TBI was 9 to 12, and severe was 3 to 6. About one quarter had an EVD placed, 20% had a craniectomy, and over 90% were in the ICU, so some seriously ill people here. By 12 months, half of the severe and three-quarters of the moderate group had favorable outcomes, meaning they were independent at home but may need some assistance outside of it. About one in five patients with severe TBI and one in three with moderate had no disability at that time. The craziest part is that 80% of the patients that were in a vegetative state at two weeks were conscious at one year, and a quarter of them regained orientation. That, to me, was shocking and will change my outlook on patients presenting to the ED with severe head injuries. I certainly don't want to present false hope to families, but this study suggests that there is a chance for improvement. Yeah, I'm so glad we reviewed this study, Jess, because as somebody who's an emergency physician and also a neurointensivist, I see a lot of therapeutic nihilism among my colleagues when it comes to brain-injured patients. And therapeutic nihilism, that is to say that you think that what you do to take care of this severely injured person doesn't influence their outcome, But that's not true. And as Mel would say, what you do truly profoundly matters. (laughs) Right. Paper number four, 
Hydronephrosis severity clarifies prognosis and guides management for emergency department patients with acute ureteral colic. Here is a good paper that doesn't quite live up to its title. The authors asked, what is the sensitivity and specificity of hydronephrosis for identifying a large stone or one in need of intervention? They looked at patients with renal colic who had a stone on CT at nine Canadian EDs. The outcome was failure of passage based on needing urologic intervention within 60 days. The authors demonstrated that increasing degree of hydronephrosis was associated with an increasing proportion of large stones. However, the share of patients with severe hydronephrosis was only 4%, and the majority of patients with any degree of hydro were still able to pass their stone without intervention. Mike suggests that all patients be offered a trial of stone passage first, and CT be reserved for those with uncertain diagnosis or failure to pass, and on the basis of this paper, I'd agree. Seems reasonable. Paper number five. Effect of 7 versus 14 days of antibiotic therapy on resolution of symptoms among afebrile men with urinary tract infections, a randomized clinical trial. This is a non-inferiority study that looked at whether treatment with 7 days of antibiotics for presumed UTI in men is good enough. Patients were eligible if they were treated in an outpatient setting with either Cipro or Bactrim by their clinician. They were excluded if febrile. Symptom resolution occurred in over 90% of both groups. The difference in UTI recurrence was not significant. Based on this study, if you're going with either Cipro or Bactrim for treatment, seven days may be sufficient. If you're interested in antibiotic stewardship on this topic, Jess Mason and Larissa May do a great job in the August 2020 MRAP segment on urinary tract infections. All right, paper number six, comparison of greater occipital nerve and supraorbital nerve block methods in the treatment of acute migraine attack, a randomized double-blind controlled trial. This is a really cool study design in which migraine patients got two injections, one in the greater occipital nerve block area and one in the supraorbital nerve block area. And patients were randomized to receive one of the four possible combinations of 1% Lido and a saline sham injection to the sites. The primary outcome was change in VAS score at 120 minutes. Sham treatment had no significant effect on the VAS. Supraorbital block, greater occipital block, and the combined block all improved the VAS scores. Superorbital block alone moved the VAS less than both the occipital block and combined block, between which there was no significant difference. So this well-done study tells us that nerve blocks, especially the greater occipital block, have a real non-placebo effect, and they can play an important role in ED migraine treatment. For more info on how to do this technique, check out the video on mrap.org. Paper number seven. Outcomes after ultramassive transfusion in the modern era, an Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma Multicenter study. The prompt and proper trials help transition us to balanced blood product resuscitation, with many hospitals now utilizing a one-to-one-to-one ratio. That was for massive transfusions. This paper looked at ultramassive transfusions defined as at least 20 units of PRBCs in a 24-hour period. There are about 450 patients over five years. These patients were sick. One-third had a thoracotomy and 10% had reboa. Mortality in patients receiving unbalanced products was higher with an odds ratio of about three. The problem with this study is that it was observational and there could have been so many confounders. So the best you can say is that this is an association. To truly see if there's a difference, a prospective trial would need to be done, but I think sticking with a balanced approach is reasonable. Yeah, you know, I'm so glad that the proper trial used one-to-one-to-one, even though it failed to meet its primary outcome, because I can remember one-to-one-to-one, and that's really the most important thing. 
Yeah, I have to say, if it was like one to two to one or two to one to one or one to one to two, I mean, it's like, it's like, which do I, I'm not, yeah. Yeah, nobody'd get resuscitated. <laughs> okay, pa- paper number eight, acute vestibular syndrome. Is skew deviation a central sign? Lots of discussion over recent years of this hints examination, head impulse, nystagmus, and test of skew for identifying posterior fossa stroke when patients present with an acute vestibular syndrome. Well, these authors looked at the test characteristics of skew deviation for detecting stroke as a cause of vertigo. They used a video test of skew deviation as part of their HINTS exam, and delayed MRI as the gold standard test for stroke. Video skew deviation was 25% sensitive and 75% specific, so a quarter of people with peripheral vertigo had an abnormal video test of skew. Now, clinically apparent skew, that is deviation greater than or equal to 3 degrees, so i.e. the kind that you and I could see in a busy ED without special video equipment, was only 15% sensitive, but 98% specific. However, stroke patients that had this also had other findings on their HINTS exam, making skew deviation the least helpful part of the HINTS exam package. You know, I have to say, I'm glad to hear that because when I hear test of skew, I feel like my eyes glaze over. And it's like, you can tell me a hundred times how to do this, and I feel like I still can't process it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the way that you say skew deviation in Jess Monas language is, could you call stroke neuro for me, please? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Paper number nine, intravenous insulin for the management of non-emergent hyperglycemia in the emergency department. These authors compared lower dose IV regular insulin less than or equal to five units to higher dose greater than five units in patients with non-emergent hyperglycemia. To make a story short, there was greater glucose reduction, but also more hypokalemia in the higher insulin group with no difference in ED length of stay. But do we care? If a patient is not in DKA or HHS, why are we obligated to fix a number? Is there any meaningful benefit in clinical outcomes? We reviewed a paper in November of 2019 that looked at sending patients home with a glucose less than 350 versus less than 600, and there was no difference in complications or hospitalizations. So much like we say with hypertension in the ED, let it go, let it go. Can't keep them there anymore. Let it go. You know what, Jess? I love anytime you ask, (laughs) but do we care in an ultra summary? It means the answer is always no. We (laughs) do not care. We don't care. Okay, yeah. So we don't care about this either. They're going to be fine. Paper number 10. Effect of a restrictive versus liberal blood transfusion strategy on major cardiovascular events among patients with acute myocardial infarction and anemia, the reality randomized clinical trial. These authors performed a non-inferiority RCT to challenge the dogma that a hemoglobin should be maintained greater than 10 in the case of acute MI. They randomized 666 people, that's the end of the beast, by the way, with AMI and a hemoglobin 7 to 10 to transfusion targets of greater than or equal to 8, that was the restrictive group, versus greater than or equal to 10 in the liberal group. Primary outcome, as usual, MACE, composite of all-cause death, stroke, recurrent MI, or emergency revascularization at 30 days. About a third of patients in the restrictive group got blood, as opposed to almost 100% in the liberal group. The restrictive group had non-inferior outcomes, and it saved about 400 units of blood transfusion. So let's add this to the many papers that suggest whenever it comes to blood transfusion, less is more. Right. And I just, I have to wonder, were they aiming for 666 people or was that just totally yeah, random? Yeah, that's a, that, they used a Ouija board for their power calculation. Right. Were they like, well, we have 665, we've got to get one more. Or was it like, we have 667, you need to drop one. That's the neighbor of the beast. <laughs> right. Paper number 11, 
Basha Iliaka blocks performed in the emergency department decrease opioid consumption and length of stay in hip fracture patients. In this non-blinded, non-randomized study, patients with hip fractures that receive fascia iliaca blocks receive less opioids pre- and post-surgery. In fact, the group with the block got about half as many morphine milliequivalents and also had a decreased length of stay by about one day. Not too bad. We covered a few papers on this, including a systematic review from January of 2019 that supported its use. An RCT we discussed in November of that year did not have the same favorable outcome, although, as Sanjay points out, it was a very small study with a disparity in the randomization. To learn this technique, search the MRAP HD videos for fascia iliaca block. Paper number 12, Effectiveness of a Care Transitions Intervention for Older Adults Discharged Home from the Emergency Department, a Randomized Controlled Trial. The authors here evaluated the effect of a home visit from a paramedic coach done one to three days after ED discharge on preventing ED readmissions within 30 days. The intervention focused on understanding red flag symptoms, medication adherence, follow-up, and self-management. The short version here is that one in six of the patients in the intervention group never got the intervention, so the authors performed both intention to treat and per-protocol analyses to reevaluate the results. However, in both, there was no difference in the primary outcome. The per-protocol analysis suggests there's a role for more study of these kind of interventions, but unfortunately, this paper was kind of a bust. Mm, too bad. Paper 13, skin tapes and tissue adhesive versus either method alone for laceration repair in a porcine model. This paper compared skin tape, tissue adhesive, and a combination of the two to see which is stronger. Not a shocker, using both together provided the strongest closure. It took 10 pounds more of force to disrupt the wound when using the combo immediately following wound repair compared to either alone. Now, what does this mean in real life? Aaron, I have no idea. What is the average force placed on a repaired laceration during normal daily activity? Also, no idea. I guess what I would take away from this is that if you are worried a wound is under tension, add some tape. Seems reasonable. Paper number 14, Diagnosis and Classification of Headache Associated with Sexual Activity Using a Composite Algorithm, a Cohort Study. This paper attempts to characterize the danger of acute headaches associated with sexual activity. Now, most such headaches are benign, but the rate at which subarachnoid hemorrhage, intraparenchymal hemorrhage, and cerebrovascular injuries occur is of interest to emergency docs. This was a consecutive sample of ED and neuroclinic patients in Taiwan with at least two or more of these headaches, which probably dilutes the proportion of serious headaches and makes the results less applicable to our ED practice. But the bottom line here is that 3% of these patients still had a serious cause, most of them aneurysmal subarachnoids, and this alone is way too high to ignore. Yeah, I mean, if someone comes to you and tells you that they have like terrible worse headache, you know, during or after intercourse, right, I, I would take this so seriously. Because this study, in order to get in it, as you said, right, they had to have had at least, right, this had to have been at least the second headache that they had. So I imagine that many people, when they have a subarachnoid, it's their first subarachnoid. So I mean, this is, to me, seems like a way underestimate. So scary. Paper 15. Utility of chest radiographs in children presenting to a pediatric emergency department with acute asthma exacerbation and chest pain. This was a retrospective study of kids presenting to the ED with asthma exacerbations reporting chest pain. There were about 800 kids, a quarter of which got a chest x-ray. 40% of those kids had documented chest pain. About 1 in 10 of the chest x-rays were positive, mostly for pneumonia. 
The authors conclude, while the odds of a clinician ordering an x-ray is twice as likely if a child is complaining of chest pain, it infrequently yields positive findings, so should be limited. I'm going to agree with Sanjay here and say that 1 in 10 is not nothing. In fact, we've done a lot more for a lot less to change management in 10% of our patients. If a patient has no chest pain, no hypoxia, no fever with a reassuring exam, I'll pass. But if not, I'll probably still order one. Me too. Paper number 16, high-dose buprenorphine induction in the emergency department for treatment of opioid use disorder. Buprenorphine treatment works for opioid use disorder, but the traditional induction process is dose-limited and done over one or more days. One worry is respiratory depression, and another is precipitating acute withdrawal due to the partial opioid agonist effects of the drug. Well, these authors did a chart review describing their single-center experience with a rapid three- to four-hour induction protocol done in the ED. Of almost 600 patients induced in the ED, the majority received high doses of buprenorphine, none required naloxone or got respiratory depression, and the rate of precipitated withdrawal was less than 1%. That's actually less than what's reported in the office setting. Like all studies, this one isn't perfect, but it suggests this protocol is safe and it can expand the scope of opioid use disorder treatment in the ED setting. I mean, this is great, right? This is great and it works. The problem is we need to have a mechanism in place for these patients to follow up. So I think if you can set something up in your ED, right, and set something up with outpatient clinics, then I think that this is a really great thing that you could do. Yeah, I think, uh, unfortunately, more, more places haven't gotten on board with this yet, but it's coming. Paper 17, Public Perceptions of Physician Attire and Professionalism in the U.S. Does What We Wear Matter? Survey respondents were given photos of men and women wearing a variety of clothing, including innerwear of business attire or scrubs, with or without outerwear of white coats, softshell jackets, or fleeces. They were then rated on experience, professionalism, and friendliness, and participants were asked to identify their profession. So what did they find? White coats were associated with the perception of being significantly more experienced. Sadly, but not surprisingly, males wearing the same attire as females were perceived as more professional across the board. Males were also more likely than females to be identified as a physician. Man plus scrubs equals surgeon. Woman plus scrubs equals nurse. Ugh. Sanjay suggests having this knowledge can help by encouraging us to reiterate our roles. From personal experience, I can tell you that wearing a white coat definitely helped patients identify me as their physician. Unfortunately, I ditched it in the era of COVID. Since then, I can literally introduce myself as Dr. Monis and the initial encounter with Again, I'm Dr. Monis. If you need anything at all, let me know. And 20 minutes later, I can walk into the room and a patient on their phone will say, I have to go. My nurse is here. Quite frankly, it's infuriating. Let me tell you, Jess, that as a very heavily tattooed physician, I can, I can definitely sympathize. So I'll go in the room and they'll be like, oh, the trash is right over there. It's really full. And it's like, no, I'm here to put your mom on ECMO. Anyway. All that right. actually happened to you. That did happen to me. Yeah. Paper number 18. Traffic stops do not prevent traffic deaths. I bet a lot of us have thought about the outcome of this paper, probably while sitting on the side of the road in a small town speed trap with red and blues flashing in our rearview mirror. This paper examined the relationship between traffic stops and traffic fatalities using large national databases, and guess what? There wasn't one. The number of traffic stops varied 21,000-fold between states. Happily, just the lowest was here in Arizona, so yeah, keep doing what you're doing. And the number of traffic fatalities was also widely variable. Given ample and growing evidence of racial bias in police traffic stops, we should think very carefully before continuing this resource-heavy practice, at least in the name of public safety. 
Intuitively, I agree. You see a cop, you slam on your brake. I mean, does it really change your practice? I mean, you you could just go the speed limit, Jess. (laughs) You could. You could. Okay. I'm in Arizona. Remember that. Paper number 19, Development and Validation of an Artificial Intelligence System to Optimize Clinician Review of Patient Records. In this study, an AI system was created to help organize patient records and improve data retrieval for patients referred to a GI clinic. Each of the 12 clinicians that participated were given two records, one of which was optimized by the AI, and they were then asked 22 questions. The AI saved about 20% of the time used to answer them with no loss in accuracy. Almost all of the physicians preferred the AI system, and I assume the one that didn't is still trying to program their VCR. Here's what I envision in the future. Hey Siri, has this patient had ceftriaxone before? Yes, Dave, they have. And their penicillin allergy is bogus. What else would you like to know? It's coming. Yeah, in addition to making me worry about our future robot overlords, right? Maybe Spike Jones can make a movie about a physician that falls in love with the EMR. Uh, that would be amazing. Yeah, I don't know anyone that's in love with the EMR. Okay, paper number 20. Physician Use of Stigmatizing Language in Patient Medical Records This study qualitatively analyzed 600 notes from an urban ambulatory internal medicine clinic, examining the ways in which physicians expressed positive and negative emotions about the patient in the chart. Positive expressions included compliments and personalization, among others. Negative language included disapproval, stereotyping, discrediting, and depicting patients as difficult. One of the ways that we do this that stood out to me was through the use of direct quotes those that add little clinical value but may depict the patient as unintelligent, indifferent, or hard to deal with. Guilty as charged, guys. Bottom line here is the use of emotional language that perpetuates implicit bias and leads to unfair differences in care is really common, and we should work together to make it stop. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's important. I have to say I'm also guilty of the quotes, but uh, I'll think about that next time. Yeah, I think we've all done it, but this is a pretty serious problem. Yeah. Well, Aaron, another month down. I have to say this has been super fun. And I forgot it's November, so happy birthday. Thank you. I will email you my gift list shortly. Okay. And to everyone else out there, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we will see you next month. It's time to talk a little natty. Talk a little natty with Ken Milne. Welcome to the November Time to Talk a Little Nerdy. This is Swami, and I'm here, as always, with Dr. Ken Milne. Hello, my friend. Hey, Ken. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. So good to be uh, talking nerdy with you again. All right, let's do a little flashback here, Ken, because back in June, we chatted about cognitive biases, and at the end of that segment, you kind of threw out and said, you know, we should revisit this topic because there's so many different cognitive biases out here. We only covered five. It would be great, Swami, if you picked your own. So I I did. I I went into it. I looked at it. And I picked four cognitive biases that I really would like to get into. You down? Four. Seriously? Only four, Swami? What about my favorite number of five? I mean, I'm always happy to talk a little nerdy with you, but I'm going to throw out one more cognitive bias at the end of this list just to bring it up to five. We're going to round it out with one more from you, but I, I feel like I went with four on purpose, Ken. I wanted to see if I triggered you. and, and You triggered me. I triggered you. I clearly, clearly triggered you. Now, before we dive in, before we dive into the four that I selected and the one that you're going to add on, let's first review what cognitive biases are. Okay, sure. There's lots of ways to define this, but I like to think of a bias 
as something that systematically moves us away from the quote unquote truth, which is just a shorthand for saying the best point estimate of an observed effect. It's like the wind blowing a sailboat off its course. And then cognitive biases are a type of error in thinking that occurs when people are processing and interpreting the information in the world around them. So it's like a little glitch, a little error. And they're like logical fallacies. And you know I like talking about logical fallacies, but they're different too. A logical fallacy requires an argument, whereas a cognitive bias, a heuristic, a mental shortcut, refers more to our default thinking pattern. And in that June segment, you discussed those five anchoring bias, base rate neglect, hindsight bias, information bias, and the Semmelweis reflex. We actually expanded that last one out into its own segment on the Semmelweis reflex. And I think people should go back, listen to June, listen to July to hear all of those details. And now we're going to get into the four that I selected, and we're going to start with availability bias. Well, was that just the easiest one to pick because it was available to you? See what I did there? How meta. (laughs) First thing that pops up when you Google, Ken. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Oh, it started with the letter A, A. But availability bias in medicine, it's the inclination to think of a diagnosis is more likely if it just readily comes to mind. So someone comes in with chest pain, the emergency physician will probably have a broader differential diagnosis because these are undifferentiated people. They don't come in with a label on their forehead saying, I'm a STEMI, I'm a PE, I'm just anxiety, right? People come in saying, I've got a chief complaint of chest pain. And so we tend to have a broad differential. But if that same patient presents to a cardiologist, they may be more likely to think, hey, this is ACS. Or a hematologist might go, hey, I think this chest pain's a PE. Or even a gastroenterologist may say, you know what? I think your chest pain is more likely to be GERD gastroesophageal reflux disease. Your diagnoses of a specific disease can be inflated by what you see regularly, and you will underdiagnose things if the condition is rare to your practice. So that's that availability bias. And this can be swayed as well by what you've seen recently. If you recently saw an aortic dissection, you might start thinking all chest pain is aortic dissections, which we know isn't true, but that's another bias that can seep in. And this is sort of like what's happened over the last 15, 16 months, where every single patient coming in with fever and shortness of breath must be COVID. It must be COVID because that's what was happening when we were getting hit by wave after wave. In fact, when patients didn't have fever and shortness of breath, we're like, you're probably COVID too, because everything (laughs) that we saw was COVID all the time. And that can miss some of the other diagnoses that are out there. It can miss the pulmonary embolism, the influenza, the standard bacterial pneumonia. And so Yes, we do have to follow some patterns, and the things that are common are common, but we have to keep in our mind that just because it's what pops into our mind right away isn't everything. Yeah, availability bias is also sort of like something called the law of the instrument, which, you know, I'm sure you've heard of that before, Swami. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that I do not know what that is, and while I am furiously Googling it, you can tell the listeners what it is. You know what this is, because you've heard about this before. If you have a hammer... Everything looks like a nail. Ah, yes, yes. I've heard this many, many times. And of course, the joke is it's the orthopedic cognitive bias. Exactly. The law of the instrument is also called the law of the hammer, Maslow's hammer, not Maxwell's silver hammer. That's a Beatles song. Or the golden hammer. 
It's sort of like the availability cognitive bias, but it's an over-reliance on a familiar tool. And there's an actual quote where this came from, and that was Abraham Maslow said, quote, I suppose it is tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail. I think those are some wise words by Maslow, who has given us many wise words and many wise theories. And so I think we've kind of gone into availability bias and what it is. Let's get to my second cognitive bias, which is the fundamental attribution error. And and Ken, I'm going to go ahead and say that I make the fundamental attribution error almost every day and many, many times a day if I happen to be driving. Hmm. I'm wondering what that'll be. So um, fundamental attribution error can be thought of as a form of stereotyping. It's when we think that a patient's disease or illness is due to their character rather than a valid explanation. And you'll see this in marginalized groups such as ethnic minorities, those with substance use disorder, and homeless people. We can get all judgy and judgmental and and blame a patient based on their skin color, their gender identity, their religion, socioeconomic status, all of these different things, rather than considering the actual cause. We attribute their illness to their character in some way instead of their underlying disease. And you can see this specifically with psychiatric patients. And actually, that has its own cognitive bias name called the psych-out error. Yeah, and let me explain exactly what I meant by using the fundamental attribution error and falling prey to that on a regular basis. The way that I think about this outside of medicine is I'm driving and somebody cuts me off. They're in the wrong lane. They squeeze over into my lane. And my first response is, what a jerk. But if I had done the same thing, if I had been in the wrong lane, I'm like, oh my God, I'm supposed to be in the left lane and I had to move over. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. That's just because, oh, I just made a mistake. And so when it's somebody else, we kind of assume, oh, this person's a jerk. When it's us, we're like, no, 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 I I was just in a hurry and and I forgot where I was going. So it kind of reframes us every time that we think, oh, that person's a jerk. Oh, that person did something that that they knew was wrong. Just think about the response that you would have or, or how you would feel when it was you, because we know we all make these little mistakes. So that fundamental attribution error, and I, and I like how you framed it, is not about the person being a bad person. This is what's happened in front of us, and, and we have to get to the bottom of it. And you're right. The psychiatric patient is, is a great example of it. You know, my old mentor, Dr. Goldfrank, said, very rarely do people die of schizophrenia, but schizophrenic people die of the regular diseases that affect everyone. And so anytime that patient comes in, we have to be really keyed into what could be happening what kind of standard diagnoses could be going on for that patient and not just attribute everything automatically to their psychiatric illness. And Ken, I think, you know, I've given an example of a non-medical place, but it'd be useful for you to give an example of a medical thing. Sure. And I really like what you said about your uh, mentor, Dr. Goldberg, because, you know, people with schizophrenia, they actually probably have a higher mortality rate for the regular stuff because we psych out on them and we attribute whatever they're presenting with to their schizophrenia, as opposed to, hey, you know, that chest pain still could be a STEMI in a schizophrenic. So we need to really try to keep the blinders off on that. But to give you another example, we have people that frequent our emergency department with substance use disorder. And we've referred to them often as a regular. So, you know, you have your regular come in and they're confused and they're vomiting and they're disheveled. And so the cognitive bias is to attribute that person to being drunk again. 
without doing a good history, followed by a directed physical examination, and then the appropriate investigation. Because if you don't, you'll get burned and that person will suffer because that regular, who comes in quite frequently with their substance use disorder, may also have diabetes. And if you don't take off the shoe and find that terrible foot ulcer and realize that they're just not, you know, intoxicated again, they're actually delirious because they're septic. And in some ways, Ken, this really combines those first two cognitive biases, the availability bias, as well as that fundamental attribution bias. And the place that I remember seeing this was on St. Patrick's Day in New York. We get lots of young people who are intoxicated and they're vomiting and they're altered, exactly like you said. And I think it's very easy to say, well, I've seen 12, 20-year-olds who were vomiting and drunk and were altered. And so this 13th one must be the same thing. But I can't tell you, Ken, how many times I've made that mistake, colleagues of mine have made that mistake, and the patient actually had a massive subdural, or they were septic, or they had, and I've seen this once, an acetaminophen overdose that made them really look like they were confused and drunk, but in fact, it was their liver that was boxed. So we really do have to be careful, especially when you combine some of these biases, because they can really affect the way that we evaluate and work up patients. All right, let's get into our third bias that we want to drop into, which is confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is when we cherry pick the evidence to support our diagnosis and we ignore any evidence that refutes our diagnosis. It can also be an echo chamber where we stick our fingers in our ears and go, na 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 I can't hear you, to any disconfirming information. And this can be in the face of refuting evidence that's actually much stronger evidence than what we're using to try to make our diagnosis. So this almost sounds like you do a Google search on an issue, you take the first hit that comes up, it agrees with your position, and so you ignore everything that comes after it. Exactly. You cherry pick that first hit, you know, and so that's that confirmation bias. You had this preconceived notion, boom, there it is, done, instead of actually digging a little deeper. And in medicine, confirmation bias can be even worse, where we don't even look for other evidence. And this is another actual bias called premature closure. See how I'm trying to sneak in more than just your four examples? Because I love talking cognitive biases. Ken, I think one of the common places this comes up is you have an older patient who comes into your emergency department. They're slightly confused or slightly off of their baseline. You get a urine. It's got five to 10 white cells. And you're like, boom, it's a UTI. I'm done evaluating this patient. I know what's wrong. Give them some antibiotics and they'll be fine. And of course, we know that there are many times where you think it's a UTI, but actually it's a medication issue, or they have a CNS infection, they have something else going on. But again, we latch onto that little bit of information that confirms the bias that we entered in with, and it makes it very easy for us then to stop our workups. And instead of searching for something else, just take that as the diagnosis and move on from there. Let's get to the fourth cognitive bias that I've selected, and that's the ambiguity effect. Oh, so you're going to end with one that's really kind of ambiguous. <laughs> Nicely done. All right. Well, there is lots and lots of uncertainty in medicine. And this is something our good friend Justin Morgenstern from the website First10EM and I discussed when we downgraded the NNT website recommendation of TPA for stroke to yellow, meaning uncertain. EM physicians, we just seem to be a lot more comfortable with uncertainty than some of our other specialties, like neurologists. But getting back to this ambiguity effect, 
This is when uncertainty makes physicians avoid some diagnoses when the probability is less well-known. I think this is really important when you you said it up front. We are good with uncertainty. We, we understand that it's part of our specialty. But even as emergency physicians, sometimes we will kind of shove all of the information into a diagnosis because we want to wrap it up in a nice, neat little package instead of kind of embracing the fact that we have some data that maybe pushes us in a couple of different directions and we're not exactly sure. But to become sure, either we need time or maybe another test and we don't want to do that. So we try to shove everything into one place so that it all kind of fits. And so when you're making up your differential diagnosis for a patient, you're going to put a disease that you know well up high on that list and everything else is going to kind of be below it. And then as you get information back, you're going to try and squeeze it into that diagnosis. Yeah. And the uncertainty can be due to a variety of factors, including a lack of knowledge by the physician, a lack of resources, like in one of the environments I mainly work at, doesn't have a CT scanner or even choosing a diagnosis that just doesn't take as much effort to work up. Ken, well, those are my four picks, but I know we're not done. Oh, we're not done. I'm adding another one of my favorite cognitive biases, and I think this is just a great one to finish on. All right, and this will round it out as a set of five to go along with our prior set of five. What's the last cognitive bias you want to discuss? All right, the fifth and final one is the zebra effect. I guess you would call it the zebra effect. And we've all heard the phrase, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. However, rare diseases, while by definition rare, still rarely do occur. And so the zebra retreat is when you really think it's one of these rare zebras, but you back away from that diagnosis for a variety of reasons. And what are those reasons? Why would we back away from the diagnosis when we're pretty sure of what we've got? Well, I'm going to give you five possibilities. Just five. And the first one is, you don't want to be labeled as the big zebra hunter in your department. Oh, there's Ken. He's going on another zebra hunt. So that's one reason. Also, we don't want to be seen as wasting resources. I mean, we are constantly being told by a variety of organizations and administration that we need to be choosing wisely. A third reason is, you know, we just don't have the time to rule out a zebra diagnosis. I mean, we work in a busy, chaotic environment. I barely have time sometimes to uh, drink, eat, go to the bathroom. How am I going to go on a big zebra hunt? A fourth reason is you just don't have the resources. I mean, you need timely access maybe to an MRI to make that diagnosis. Or ultrasound at your community hospital on nights, holidays, and weekends isn't available after 11 p.m. or something like that. And the fifth reason that I put in about a zebra retreat is, you know when you call up the specialist and you don't want to be ridiculed? I mean, sometimes when you're thinking, oh, I think, I think it's this, like, this zebra, this rare thing, but you can just hear that consultant rolling their eyes on the phone. That's a good list. And, and I think that we all experience this when we are seeing a patient, we're like, I think it's this rare disease that I learned about. Maybe I've seen it once. I, I think that's what I need to work up. But we have those doubts in our mind. And the five that you laid out, I think, are the common ones that we hear over and over and over again that pushes us away from pursuing the imaging or, or pursuing the transfer or pursuing the consultant that we need to help us with that diagnosis. 
But to some degree, we have to understand that we're going to work up far more of those patients than we're actually going to find that disease. And that's okay. That's part of the process. That's, that's how emergency medicine works. Again, I think this is a great list, especially when we put this five together with the five that we had before. I think it gives people a little flavor of these cognitive biases. And, you know, I think we hinted at it a couple of times in both of these segments. They don't exist in isolation. They combine. They combine to make it even harder for us to do the right thing, to make the diagnosis that we need to make. And we need to really understand these well, not just in our professional lives, because they do all apply to medicine, but they apply to our lives outside of medicine as well. And I'll tell you that understanding some of these has really made me reconsider my reactions to certain things when they happen or, or my response my evaluation of situations, I think it's really important for us to understand how our minds work. And of course, we have to go to the next step, which is it's great to understand them. Now we have to fight those impulses. We have to fight some of those biases and eliminate them, or at least understand, I know I have this bias. So let me take a step back. Let me reevaluate this patient. Let me make sure that I take all the information in, make sure that I'm not missing something. And I think this is how we can actually do this better. It's great to know the cognitive biases, it's even better for us to know which ones we fall prey to and how to combat that. Well, Swami, what I've learned about this is the next time you cut me off in your Tesla Model X, I'm not going to think you're a jerk. <laughs> That's right, Ken. Uh, I'm not a jerk because I cut you off. I'm a jerk for many other reasons that we can get into in another <laughs> Oh, time. so you understood that. Yeah, not for cutting me <laughs> off. <laughs> All right, Ken, this is great. Always a pleasure to chat with you about this stuff. And I'm hoping that some of our listeners will send in some other cognitive biases. Maybe we'll get into a third segment down the line and look at this. I'm sure, though, that we'll be back in December with something that is a little bit more of a hard statistical or methodologic concept. Try and mix it up a little bit. But we'd be happy to hear other cognitive biases from the listeners, things that you guys think we should tackle, as well as any other topic that you think we should tackle. We're happy to take on whatever you send our way. And until next time, remember to stay nerdy. Stay nerdy, everyone. And scene. Hey, hey, November in the books. Yeah. And hopefully I'm I'm gonna go. COVID is is good now because COVID's bad right now. So two in months September. you think it'll be two good. Two months we're good. If we follow our, our EMA pattern. I'll just say that I'm I'm tired of ho- hope saying now and I'm hoping it's gonna be good in the future. I just hope that however we get to do it, everybody has a good Thanksgiving. Good friends get maybe you had a good Halloween even. We got yeah. back out there a little bit. Our birthdays were awesome. Well, our birthdays are always awesome, even if we're at home celebrating by ourselves. So everybody out there, stay safe. Thanks for listening. But most importantly, as you always know, more than anything else you could do, stay classy. You stay classy.